I'll perform this feat in a manner never before seen by any other audience in the world. The audience liked it. This trick is top-notch. A friendship that led to rivalry. A real magician tries to invent something new. I suppose you have such a trick. A rivalry that led to obsession. You don't know how he does it. An obsession that could destroy everything. How does he do it? He won the truth. The Prestige. Christopher Nolan's The Prestige opened in 2006 to a modest reception but quickly grew in stature. A mystery of magic and murder in Victorian London, it was a critical smash and continued Nolan's journey to becoming the event movie maker of his generation. My name's John and with me today we have The Great Westie. And the only way that I know how to do it is to find you a bloody good double! And Matt the Professor Bartley. Don't forget your hat, Mr Angier. All the right movies are in the 1890s to talk trickery, Tesla, and the transported man. Just one question, are you listening closely? Hello and welcome to All the Right Movies. Familiar to certain citizens of the Orient and various holy men of the Himalayas, <laughs> we're a podcast on classic and hit films. Yeah. Yeah. Today's episode, we've got something very special up our sleeves, don't we? We do. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Big sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> Jimi Hendrix sleeves. I know, ridiculous. <laughs> we're back with Christopher Nolan to talk one of his earlier films. It's mm. an all-star cast and a total devotion to our art as we talk Nolan's magical period thriller, The Prestige. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right from the start, we should be clear that we are diving in deep on the prestige. Mm-hmm. Yes. The film has a load of twists and turns, and we're going to be revealing all of its secrets and more. Spoiler heavy. Yeah. yeah, so if you haven't seen the film, you might want to pause this, watch the movie, and then come back to us. Do you think? Yeah, I think so. Maybe take 20 minutes in between, have a lie down. Like, <laughs> maybe don't dive straight into it. <laughs> Four hours. Yeah, yeah. watch it twice. Yeah. <laughs> Well, before we join the Magic Circle, we're talking about Patreon again. Mm. Yep. It's the pledge, the turn, and Patreon for us. Nice. <laughs> if you're a fan of what we do on this, our classic podcast, and would like us to carry on doing it, you can help support that by becoming an All the Right Movies patron. Patrons get access to bonus podcast episodes and access to our full archive of classic episodes like this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The archive's growing week on week, and we have a load of other classics in there. Yeah. If you like Christopher Nolan, The Dark Knight and Inception are mm-hmm. waiting for you. Yep. Yeah. If you like Christian Bale, American Psycho. Mm-hmm. If you like Scarlett Johansson, and who doesn't, mm-hmm. we've got <laughs> a bonus episode on Lost in Translation. We do. And loads more. So a magical selection there, surely. Yeah, Huge. definitely. Yeah. So to find out more and sign up, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies. Mm-hmm. Enough about that, though. It's back to Chris Nolan and his own box of tricks. Mm. It's The Prestige. Your choice this one, Matt. So why did you put it up? I think it's his most overlooked film. And I know his debut isn't particularly well known by a lot of people, but this one gets overlooked because it's sandwiched right in between Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. Yeah. And I think people kind of forget that he made that film in between those two. And also because of how small scale it is. And on one hand, it's very atypical for a Nolan film. There's no action sequences. There's no big set pieces. Very, very little CGI. But on the other hand, it's 
very typical Nolan. It's about pulling off this trick in front of people's eyes with the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Mul- multiple non-linear storylines going on in their own direction before he pulls them all together. And it's a film that is absolutely tailor-made for multiple viewings. I don't believe anyone who says, oh yeah, press stage, watch it once, totally got it. You didn't. <laughs> yeah. You didn't. Watch it again. Well, I saw this at the cinema when it came out. I was excited for it because I'd loved Batman Begins a year mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. When I saw this, though, I remember that I had a hangover. And oh. I'm using that as the reason why I had not a single clue what was going on. No idea. He's in America one minute and then London the next. People are dead. Then they're alive. Wise Bowie got a moustache. Can't handle that. <laughs> <laughs> then when I watched it again a few years later, I think I was actually shocked by how much I liked it. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Matt, it is a film that demands rewatches. So right. we all get into how we feel about it now. I'm a big fan of Northern generally, like you two are. Yeah. His films are always worth talking about. And with this one being one of his earlier and probably less seen movies, I think mm. it's a great one to do. Definitely. And... I might be stepping on your toes here a bit, Westy, but okay. coming up later on, I have what I think is a not bad Westy theory. Wow. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. that. I thought I had that we was going to paint them as theories, but I think there's so many questions in this film that they're not even theories anymore. They're just like mm. yeah. wild questions. So yeah. I, I'm looking forward to seeing what that is. Cool. So here he is, the great Westy. Oh, right. <laughs> the prestige for you. The prestige for me. I think that line about the future, where it's like, you know, you weren't ready for this yet, but your kids are going to love it. I think mm. when this came out in 2006, <laughs> nobody was ready for it. He'd just done Batman Begins. I think this was Nolan dipping back to going, I need to do something narratively before I explode and do The Dark Knight. Yeah. And it, it's very much for me in the in the tone of Memento or Insomnia in that way. It's a character study. It's a beautiful character study. It's almost like a theatre play in itself. I think the performances are really beautifully weighted. I think all the characters are really beautifully realised. The writing's extremely good. This is mm. the deepest film I think he's done where he he's just laughing at you. It's him and Jonathan <laughs> Nolan. I can see them sitting in the room just laughing at you going, you're going to watch this for years and still not understand what it's about, but you're still <laughs> going to love it. And that's how I feel about it now. I love that I don't really truly understand this mm. and I'm still figuring it out. It's, uh, it's a masterpiece. So The Prestige was produced by Warner Brothers and released on October the 20th, 2006. Filmed around Los Angeles and in Colorado, it was directed by Christopher Nolan, adapted by Nolan and Jonathan Nolan from Christopher Priest's novel of the same name, and it stars Hugh Jackman as Robert Angier, Christian Bale as Alfred Borden, Scarlett Johansson as Olivia Wenscombe, Rebecca Hall as Sarah Borden, David Bowie as Nikola Tesla, and Michael Caine as John Cutter. Obviously. Obviously. (laughs) So, shall we begin? Yes. Let's do it. Okay, send in the clones. We're getting into it with the beginning of <laughs> The Prestige. The first part is called The Pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary, and Nolan doesn't hang about in doing that and more. Not at all. Voiceover narration, character intros, flashbacks, flash forwards all come thick and fast in the opening act, and we're talking some big character moments. Mm. The life and death rivalry between our two main characters, Angia and Borden, is coming, but first, it's the tragic event that sets that rivalry in motion. Yeah, it is. So we start with our two leads working for Milton the Magician. And Gia's wife Julia is Milton's assistant, and when Borden binds her with a risky Langford double knot during a Chinese water torture trick, Julia drowns in the tank. Mm. Not a great way to go. 
Is it West Deep? It's terrifying. It's horrible. Mm. It's it's one of them scenes where you kind of know it's going to come. It's been set up beautifully because they pull it off the first time. He argues about the knot. He knows that he's right. And, you know, on repeat viewings, this might be him. It might be someone else, but you never can <laughs> tell. But we'll go into that later <laughs> on. And I think that, you know, you, you say pledge, but they use pledge on that glass because you can see everything. <laughs> when she's suffering you're suffering when kid's coming in he's checking his watch and he's hitting that glass you just yeah, think yeah. it's so painful and I think just the look on Bale's face is just he really sells that panic and that oh my god I shouldn't have done this this is just absolute pandemonium and imagine sitting in that first row when that water comes out oh yeah that's a yeah. show you're like I paid money for this this is like this is like SeaWorld this is amazing it's like Shamu <laughs> but it's a, it's, a, it's a heartbreak and it needs to be because you need this you need to feel the pain that Andrea feels mm. to to understand his passion for everything that happens to both of them in this film and there's a tiny bit after this as well where he tries to drown himself in the sink to see how she felt and he couldn't yeah. do it mm-hmm. yeah. and that breaks my heart every time it's a beautiful performance that bit from Jackman mm-hmm. yeah I like every scene in the film that takes place in a theatre on a stage yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah. watching a good magician doing a trick is always engaging and Northern taps into that really well I think yeah. the production design and the way they shoot the onstage scenes is really good throughout. And it starts, yeah, yeah with mm. Julia's death. It is, though, really tough to watch, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, really hard. I always kind of dread this scene coming when I watch the film because it's mm. pretty brutal watching her in that tank. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's awful. I thought this was about magic tricks. People yeah. drowning in front of our eyes. Uh, Piper yeah. Parabo, she's the actress who plays Julia. Yeah. It is, she yeah. was in Coyote Ugly as well. She was. She and was. she doesn't get a great deal to do, but what she does, you don't forget it. No. As a moment to kickstart the rivalry between Angie and Borden, it definitely carries enough of a punch to justify a lifelong vendetta. If someone mm. killed my wife with a dodgy knot and then told me, I don't know, I'd get David Bowie involved as well. <laughs> no messing about. <laughs> yeah, it's that nod and that agreement, though, that she agreed yeah. to it. Yeah, And know. he knows that. But on rewatches, that is such a great line. Obviously, Borden doesn't know, we assume, because it wasn't him who tied the knot. It was his brother. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah. it's a huge narrative moment. Sets us up for the magic shows we're going to be watching for the rest of the film. And I think the whole thing is really well put together. Yeah, yeah, in Milton Magician, that's played by Ricky Jay, who is a real-life American magician. You'll, you'll have seen him in loads of things. Yeah. But he's got this reputation for being brilliant at sleight of hand, and as well as playing Milton, he taught Jackman and Bale some sleight of hand techniques. Yeah, that thing that Borden does with the ring a few times across his fingers when he moves yeah. the ring. Yeah. That's brilliant, that. That's great, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but apparently Jay wouldn't reveal the secrets. He'd show Bale and Jackman the start, the middle, or the end of a trick, but never all mm-hmm. three. And one right, day, right. Jackman said to him, hey, Ricky, my kids keep asking me to do magic tricks for them. Any chance you can show me something just simple? And Jay went, no. Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> Good for him. There's some critics of the film have said it's a plot hole that when Julia is pulled from the tank, Angie kneels over her body but doesn't try and resuscitate her. And I thought that as well when I first saw it, because I've yeah. seen Beer watch that many times. <laughs> like, but this is accurate, though. CPR wasn't recognised until 1960, which I didn't know at all. Yeah. That is right, but the bigger problem I have is, so Julia's drowning in the tank, uh-huh. Cutter comes out with the axe and starts chopping yeah. away, he's getting nowhere, mm. and Borden and Angia just stand there watching, every time mm. I'm like, someone take the axe off him for God's sake, he's 80 years old, <laughs> she's gonna die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well after this you get a her funeral, and I have to say, Nolan loves the trope of the dead woman inspiring the main character doesn't he oh yeah loved it. dead woman in memento batman begins with mrs wayne twice here with julia and then sarah <laughs> later on 
dead wife in Inception, dead woman in Oppenheimer as well. Like, if I was yeah. Emma Thomas, I'd be quite worried about how much <laughs> Nolan loves a dead wife or dead girlfriend. Just so he doesn't have to do it in real life. He's just yeah. playing it out on the screen. <laughs> I like how you call her Mrs. Wayne there as well. Very formal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Martha Wayne. Well, yeah. I forgot the name, to be honest, that's why. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Save your blushes there, but yeah. no, Martha Wynn, dickhead. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about this scene, though, is it sets up two roads that you think the film is going to go down, but it doesn't. Like, first of all, it sets it up that Kudder is on the side of Angier. And for the majority of the film, he is, which I think makes it all the more effective when Angier turns Kudder against him mm. by the end, when he's framed bored and, and stealing his daughter away from him. And it also makes you think that this will be about Angie pursuing revenge entirely because of Julia's death. And for a while it is like that. But then actually it becomes about something else entirely for Angie, which says a lot about his character, which I think, you know, I'll, I'll talk about that more when we talk about Jackman's performance. So, okay. yeah, it sets up really nice. And as years have finished out, one last thing, which will be a recurring question throughout this discussion, I think, on second viewing, which Borden turns up at the funeral. You know, because he looks distraught, and, and one yeah. one of the Bordens has more of a conscience than the other. So it's mm. like, which one turned up there, and is that why he can't explain why he doesn't know which knot he died? Yeah, I really like the shot we get looking down the funeral gathering, very much like mm. a Kubrick one point perspective shot. It is, yeah. I don't yeah. know what Borden's thinking of though. Just turning up, not just turning no. up, getting right in there, right in right his face. In, yeah. I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> But he genuinely is because it wasn't him. Like, yeah, it's yeah, a difference yeah. to the other one, and he knows that. I think that as well, yeah. Yeah, I think that. I think Jackman's very good where he's shouting after him. You don't know? I mean, better than that, but that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Loads of times. Yeah. yeah. You don't know! <laughs> yeah. How can you not know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of my favourite things about the opening as a whole, though, is that the first two shots of the film basically reveal the future secrets of both Angie and Borden. Right. Mm. The opening shot is where the camera pans across dozens of top hats. We find out later yeah. they're Angia's hats that have been cloned. The second shot is two identical looking birds in a cage that Sarah's mm-hmm. nephew later calls brothers. So mm-hmm. shot one, clones, is Angia's method. And shot two, identical brothers, is Borden's method. Yeah. And as yeah. we're shown these images, Borden narrates, are you watching closely? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I am, but not that closely, Northern. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't have a clue. And one of the birds dies, and it's yeah. where's his brother? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. But yeah. that shot at the top part—that's a great shot. That. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Julia's death and its fallout. Then powerful stuff from the start of the Prestige. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yes. I think it needs to be, and it, it doesn't really let up from here. No, definitely not. And Gian Borden develop their own acts, and both find some success. With Angia blaming Borden for Julia's death, though, a fierce rivalry grows, leading to each magician turning up at and ruining the other show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Intense, this rivalry, isn't it, Westy? It's really intense. They fucking hate each other, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Jesus, it just gets thicker all the way through, like, fucking hate each other, man. And it's tell you what's great is how shit the disguises are, and they get progressively <laughs> shit all the way through the film. Yeah. Even <laughs> at the point where it just says to Angier at one point, you're going to need a better disguise when he goes yeah. to see the, the transported man. It's the worst massive tash in there, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. And in this scene where Borden performs a bullet catch and Angier shoots them, and we're talking about the disguises, I mean, Fallon's there. And Borden's there, and they still kind of see this guy who definitely yeah. looks like Andrea. Yeah. And he hands him a fucking gun. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't realize till he turns around. I think that's really brilliantly done by Nolan because you're shocked. He doesn't show anything else apart from the shoulders. You see mm. him drop the bullet in, yeah. you kind of know what's going to yeah. happen. And I think he kind of accepts his fate. And it's just the way that 
you know he's definitely going to go through with it. And then Fallon turns up, pushes the gun away, blows his fingers off. And then you think, right, where's this going to go from here? And it totally, totally blows the whole theory out the water of the the double because you just think, you know, he pats mm-hmm. his fingers and that's it. And it's a really, really massive MacGuffin just introduced through what looks like an accident. Mm, yeah. It's fucking brilliantly done. And Bale, when he's like, ah, yeah. ah! Just screaming on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you would be, and that's what—that's <laughs> what I believe is like. It's that's how powerful the performance is because that's exactly what I'd be like. Yeah, absolute stoke as these two guys just following each other about. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, though, it's the magicians on stage doing their thing, and it's great. I like the bit before the bullet catch as well, where Borden shows Sarah how he does the trick. It's interesting because yeah. when she fires the gun and he catches the bullet, she loves it. She's mm. laughing, saying, "That's very good." But then yeah, when he yeah. shows her how he does it, she's just like, "Yeah." Oh. Oh totally no, unimpressed yeah and it's funny yeah. when Borden tries to save face by going no no it's still dangerous people have died from doing it <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah put a button in there yeah, yeah. Sarah's just like well how <laughs> and that's what Borden means when you tell Sarah's nephew nobody's impressed by the secret so it ties in with that nicely yeah I mean I think Borden's revenge for this is set up so well when Angie is putting that new bird trick together because it's so heavily done you must think oh my god this is such a breakthrough they're going to do the disappearing bird trick but they're not going to kill the bird yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 so amazing it, it's built up so well so you know and he says you know they've not seen this next one so you kind of feel like oh is this going to be the trick they're fighting over because it seems a bit weird but no it's just a point of pride and then again we're talking about the disguises but Borden does a very good job of getting himself in exactly the right spot to be picked out he does doesn't he <laughs> he does he's right where he needs to be you don't question it though that's the no, you genius don't. of it you're not I like know. well why the fuck and how the yeah. fuck and yeah. it's, oh it's her fingers and oh yeah that's yeah. a metaphor for what's happened before and yeah. everything foreshadows everything but you still don't guess yeah. it it's genius and then you've got the drum roll going on anyway, which is already ramping up the tension. Yeah. But then when you just get that look on his face, like that look of pure like malice, he's going to, in- whatever he's going to do, he's going to really enjoy mucking this trip up. And it's one of those scenes where it's it's the sound design. The sound design does all the work for me. The sound of it snapping and that oh, woman yeah. shrieking. Yeah. It's one of those where you think you see a lot more than you actually do. I think yeah. you barely see any blood, but it's just so cold. You know, Borden doesn't mind one bit that he's angled some innocent woman's hand mm. and, and bear in mind the time she probably did lose those fingers as well you know well he does say that she's broken them in the next scene yeah. so uh-huh. it kind of takes the weight off a little bit yeah. but they need some fucking security around these shows oh, like, they they're just like walking <laughs> up and down and straight yeah. off yeah. Yeah. yeah but how elaborate is that contraption that could have fashioned that NGS yeah. the way yeah it's like yeah. Robocop a <laughs> 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 proton pack <laughs> yeah it is yeah <laughs> and I'll just pull that down and you just stick yeah. a jacket on top oh hang up on I do like the shot of Borden's severed fingers on the cage then panning up to his face to reveal mm, it's him. Yeah. That's really yeah. good. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Both Angie and Borden need to get way more diligent in choosing their volunteers. <laughs> Literally, if the whole yeah. audience pick anyone except that guy over there and we'll be yeah. fine. Stop picking guys. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. Stop picking guys with beards. Beards, yeah. Massive, unkempt beards that look like they're stuck on. <laughs> And Nolan said that one of the things that drew him to the film was the turn of the century time period. That was the time of great industrial developments and change in magic would have seemed more possible and plausible to the audiences than it does now, as he just said, with that contraption that he uses to hide a bird, which is outrageous. He said magicians were like the filmmakers and rock stars of their day, which you can kind of see. Yeah, he said that he sees the film as an allegory for filmmaking itself. Which he says about every, every time. Yeah. 
every, <laughs> every time. <laughs> Oppenheimer, it's like making a film. Yeah. In Inception, Cobb's dream team is based on the structure of a filmmaking crew. We're here. We'll get into it more later. But Nolan says mm. the film narrative is structured like a magic trick. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Yeah. So that's act one of the prestige, the pledge of the film. But if mm-hmm. that's the ordinary bit, things are going to get wild. Oh, yeah. yeah things are yeah. certainly going to turn. Mm-hmm. The director. We've mentioned him a lot already, and the director of The Prestige was Christopher Nolan. This was his fifth feature after following Memento, Insomnia, and Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. Making a name for himself, young Nolan. How do we oh, deal yeah. with The Prestige, Matt? I think he does an excellent job, and I get this sense that coming off Batman Begins, this feels like something he, he's almost doing this one for himself. Because as much as there's some very Nolan touches in there, it does feel like uncharted territory as well. Like I said at the top, no big action set pieces. You know, even Memento and Insomnia have like foot chases. This has none of that. Mm. It's his first time adapting a book. It's his first film that doesn't take place in the 20th century. And he has so much fun because the film is about direction or misdirection. And so much yeah. what Borden and Angie do in the film is essentially what Nolan does. It It's making the audience look one way when they should be paying attention to something going else entirely in yeah. a different scene. And that's where the real clues are. And I just love all those little clues and foreshadowing that he drips in because we don't pick up on most of them. Like, certainly not first time around, when he is talking about the birds to Sarah's nephew and the mm. kid goes, but where's its brother? Exactly. Yeah. Where, where is his brother? He's totally rumbled. He's like, he's a smart lad. <laughs> yeah, he's a smart lad, isn't he? <laughs> he has yeah. a coin. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. It's probably chocolate, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, let me talk to your auntie and said that's what I'm really interested yeah. in. And then that shot of Borden dumping the dead bird in the bin. So he's already telling us there's going to be frequent use of doubles throughout this and, yeah. and loads of dead clones. Maybe we'll get into that. Yeah. And sometimes what can look really complex actually has a really easy answer. And the whole thing, I think you can read as a metaphor for Nolan as director. It's about the trickery. It's about the sleight of hand. It's about the constant rug pulling from underneath the audience. Yeah. And I think maybe his biggest achievement in the prestige is it never once feels pretentious. Mm. And he just opens up this world through someone else's words and he pulls back the curtain, even when we don't realise what he's doing. I think it's superb stuff. Mm. Absolutely. I think in so many ways, this is classic Nolan. Mm. Not a linear narrative, check. Crazy high concept, check. Wally Fister, Jonathan Nolan, Michael Caine, check, check, check. Nolan has such a strong identity as a filmmaker that I think we always see him in his films. But I Mm. think in The Prestige, we see him in a way that we don't really in his other films. In some ways, this feels like Nolan's most personal film to me. The theme of dedication to your craft is present throughout. Most mm-hmm. memorably to me in that scene where Angie and Borden watch Chung Ling Su's act and Borden's talking about his total devotion mm-hmm. to his art. Yeah. I've rarely seen a moment in a film where it comes across so clearly how much a director relates to the theme of the film because that's Nolan, obsessive over his art. Yeah, he lives it, doesn't he? Yeah, and totally tell he does, yeah. And it's yeah. there in the final scene too. And she has monologue where he's talking about the audience and why he became a magician. He says it was the look on their faces. And she has mm. talking about his act as the great Danton. But also, that's Nolan talking about why he makes films, isn't it? Yeah. 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 The great Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> There's this kind of juxtaposition I see in Nolan where he can come across as both totally obsessive and really laid back. Hugh Jackman mm. said that he couldn't believe Nolan's attention to detail and how prepared he was, but that there was still this total freedom on the set. I yeah. think both mm. those things come across on the screen, and both are a key part of Nolan's identity as a filmmaker. And, like I say, I think we can see him, especially his obsession over his art, all over the prestige. 
Yeah. And the back-to-back run they started, the Prestige, the Dark Knight, then Inception. I mean, bloody hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Really one of my favourites. Yeah. And Wesley, Christopher Nolan for you. Yeah, I think the a lot of this is down to how he puts things on the screen, and it's the the last time I think he's catered for a small screen audience. I don't think this was ne- mm. necessarily made for the cinema, but it feels like it's just coming out the side of the screen. There's too much information. It feels like it's bleeding <laughs> off the television. There's like there's too much information to take in, mm. both visually and through the sound and metaphorically. <laughs> But it's really, really fluid at the same time. It just zips past and it just moves yeah. from time frames and it just moves from characters and you just know where everything is. When has Nolan ever put something on the screen where he thinks, oh, my audience is going to be confused. I'm going to have to put yeah. a date here. That's one of the best things <laughs> yeah. about him, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And he, he uses a voiceover to say the date and it's, you know, it's not blink if you'll miss it. It's like if you're not paying attention... Mm. You'll miss it. And that I think that's his lesson to people in cinema. And this was his reaction in 2006 of people not paying enough attention and just picking up the phones and not paying attention to a film and thinking mm. everything was just easy and you just throw away. And, and he knew he was, you'd been successful with Batman Begins. And I think he didn't want people to think he was an action director. He didn't want to think he was a yeah. throwaway director. He wanted people to still see he could do something on a smaller scale with an incredibly complex narrative and incredibly complex characters. And that's what he does. He just packs it full of stuff and everything he puts into this is is completely viable <laughs> it's completely <laughs> useful it's, it's just a yeah it's just a wealth of pleasures and that's chris nolan yeah i think one of my favorite things about him is that he treats his audience as being as intelligent as he is every single yeah film. he does he does yeah and if yeah. you don't get it he's, he's not going to accept any argument he's just going to say okay yeah mm. you know yeah so i know that it was 2000 and nolan was in london and he's trying to find a u.s distributor for memento and that's when he first came across the novel and the novel as you mentioned the top john christopher priest wrote it in 1995 mm-hmm. and priest had already been approached by a famous director at this point sam mendes who was coming right. off the back of american beauty well right. he was interested nolan at this point he'd only done following but priest gave him the rights for two reasons First one was he'd seen Following and was a big fan. Mm-hmm. Second reason was he wanted to support a new filmmaker and he thought, well, Mendes, American Beauty was such a massive fit. He doesn't need my help. Nolan does. That's why he went with Nolan. Right. Yeah. Nolan was going to start on The Prestige after he did Insomnia in 2002. But because yeah. of Insomnia, he was then offered Batman Begins. So yeah. Priest yeah. got put on the back burner. Mm. Last time he does anybody a favour. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. you can tell that though because this is very much the scale of insomnia it's very much that yeah it's yeah. got that look it's got that feel to it and he did batman mm. begins and he thought wow i can get bigger here but didn't go bigger with the prestige he went back and yeah. i think that's yeah. where he needs applause and then he saved everything else for the dark knight he's mm. got so much to give it's outrageous yeah mm. to finish off on christopher nolan we have our first patreon question so if you sign up to become an all the right movies patron we'll answer your questions on the show our question now comes from one of our earliest and favourite patrons. That's just oh. Joe. Hello, Joe. Hello, Joe. So Joe is a big fan of The Prestige. She Huge. is. Huge, yeah. And she asks, arguably Nolan is king of the non-linear narrative. So my question is, what are your favourite non-linear narrative films? Picking one Nolan film and one non-Nolan film each. Right. Westy, you love some non-linear action, don't you? Oh, I do. It's one of my very favourite things. I think my whole life's non-linear, and I don't understand the age I'm at. I still feel like I should be two one day and then 18. So, yeah, I love that. It's, that makes complete sense to me. So, for me, Nolan pick, I'm going to go for the most 
non-linear in the fact that it's backwards and that that's mm. memento. And it is linear, but he's refusing to be forward linear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I absolutely yeah. adore that. And it's like, you know, there you go, that's me being linear, but you have to, you know, watch it backwards. Yeah. So that is that was the first one I'd seen and I was so excited about it. I worked at the mm. cinema at the time with Matt and I went to see it in the afternoon and then went to see it again straight after to the next show and I was mm. blown away by it. Mm. And one of the first experiences i've had of it was a film called jacob's ladder with tim oh. robbins oh yeah which to me is all based on a second linear timeline which i'll not spoil it for anyone but the twist at the end is based in a separate time yeah. from what you're experiencing mm. throughout the whole film so that work for me is how you can switch time around in on a narrative and in the cinema landscape and that was the first time i'd seen it so that's why i'm picking that one Lovely. I mean, bit of a spoiler there, Westy, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you haven't seen Jacob's he's dead all the way through, and then you find out that he's dying at the end. Deal with it. It's been out for fucking 40 years or something. <laughs> but yeah, I think Joe's right, that Nolan is one of the great non-linear narrative movie storytellers. Almost yeah. all of his films are non-linear. But where most non-linear stories are essentially told out of sequence, Nolan's often have concepts like unique ways mm. of delivering the narrative. Memento, you mm. mentioned, Westy, is about memory mm. loss, so the scenes play out backwards. In Inception, time slows down relative to the dream level we're in. And in Tennis, mm. time is reversed and plays out backwards in real time. All great. Yeah. I think my favourite concept, though, is maybe Dunkirk, where the story right. of the evacuation is told in three overlapping narratives, land, sea, and air. Land takes place over one week, sea over one day, and air over one hour. And Nolan splices mm. them together so each narrative unfolds across the course of the film, and therefore the film becomes non-linear. Not my favourite Nolan film, Dunkirk, but I love mm. that idea for a narrative structure. Yeah. I think, ironically, yeah. it's his shortest film as well. I think yeah. it is. Like, Putting all is, that yeah. stuff together into <laughs> yeah. 147 or something. Yeah, yeah something yeah. like that, yeah. 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 And non-Nolan, it's a classic for me. Rashomon. Oh, nice. Kurosawa <laughs> film from 1950 yeah. where the story of a murder is told from the point of view of four different people. That's like a yeah. classic storytelling technique now and I always like seeing it. You always see it on TV shows. The X-Files mm. has a great Rashomon episode. Right. Which also has Luke yeah. Wilson in it. Bizarrely. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dunkirk was my Nolan pick as well because I remember when he announced he was making a film about Dunkirk I thought that's going to be pretty straightforward. He's not going to be able to mess with the time in that somehow, is he? But yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. He does. We're like scenes replay, and you see from a completely different perspective, like the the pilot who gets down, and you think he's okay Brilliant. until it catches up. You realise he's drowning, and he's yeah, calling yeah. for help. Yeah, well, that's kind of a Rashomon thing, isn't it? It is. It's very yeah. Rashomon. Yeah. Really Rashomon. So yeah, Dunkirk for me was, was exceptional. Outside Nolan, though, I'm going to go for Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind. Oh, lovely. Because, again, the way that whole thing just circles back on itself and you realise that first meet at the train station is actually the second time that they've met. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And the whole thing plays differently. And that scene of Elijah Wood knocking on the, the car window and you're like, what's Elijah Wood doing there? Yeah. And then you realise later, <laughs> just blows my mind every time how the Meet me in Montauk. So meet good. me in Montauk. So yeah. good, yeah. Eternal Sunshine for non-Nolan. Yeah. Lovely. And for everyone who's going to jump on after listening to this section of the show, we are aware that Pulp Fiction should have been in there, but I think it's just <laughs> yeah. too obvious. Yeah, that's the first one you think of, isn't it, probably? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no major award recognition for Christopher Nolan on the prestige, but I think over time the film's grown in reputation to be considered among his best work. I would have said so. Definitely. The cast. Nolan was on his way to becoming one of the biggest directors in Hollywood at this time, and that's reflected in the cast with big names all across the board. Yep. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about the supporting cast as we go, and now we're going all in on the two leads. 
Robert Angier and his arch nemesis Alfred Borden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Hugh Jackman plays Robert the Great Danton Angier slash Lord Coldo, an aristocratic magician who hides his privileged upbringing. Angier's desperation to find out Borden's method takes him from London to Colorado and back again as he learns how to get his hands dirty and the cost of obsession. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He does try so very hard, Westy. <laughs> <laughs> I was Angier and Jack and Yeah, there's a bunch of the guys that I hang out with and when we first started like watching films with Hugh Jackman and we used to call him Hugh Jackson because yeah. we just think that he's just this big action star and he was just full of this kind of bravado but since this film and I think it's important to mention The Fountain which came out the same year oh uh, yeah I think he yeah. found a new level of this theatrical star less mm. of an action star and then finally the greatest influence on him is like watching The Greatest Showman because yeah. my kids absolutely love that. And right. I watch The Prestige and I'm like, that's like the Disney version of The Prestige without <laughs> any murders in it. <laughs> Loads of weird people. And from that, I think that's what I get from Hugh Jackman. This film was a real turning point for me where I went, he's not just, you know, a muscly actor of mm. action films and bravado. He's actually got the talent that it needs to pull this off and connect with an audience. Yeah, I think he gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes, Hugh Jackman, don't you? I think he does, yeah. Mm. I think he's really good. Oscar nominated for Les Miserables and obviously yeah. massively popular as Wolverine. That right there is a pretty impressive range. And I think The Prestige, one of my favourite performances of his. Yeah, that in Prisoners for me, I think he's incredible in Prisoners. Yeah, he's good in that as well, yeah. I think he plays a few roles in this film, like Peter Sellers. <laughs> he's excellent as Angier. I think it's masked behind all the twists and turns a bit, but Angier actually mm-hmm. has a huge arc. He's a happy married man at the start. By the end, his obsession and sacrifice has twisted him out of all recognition. Takes uh-huh. board yeah. his daughter and happily sees him hanged. That's horrendous mm-hmm. behaviour. Yes, yeah. And Jackman yeah, yeah. portrays that all really well. He's also Gerald Root. I know. Not a typical <laughs> Hugh Jackman character by any means. I didn't no. want to bring that up because he's fucking horrible. I hate him yeah, as well. Yeah, he's not brilliant at it. But he does okay. <laughs> I do like yeah, it when yeah. he says, you would drink too if you knew the world half as well as I do. <laughs> That's a yeah, brilliant line. Great. You know, I hate him when I very first introduced to him and he's like, can I tell you a joke? And then gets yeah. him in a headlock. Oh, he's yeah. like, are you laughing now? I need yeah. to take a piss. Yeah. Oh, he's fucking despicable. I don't think it's a bad performance. Like, he's just a disgusting character yeah, yeah. so well played. To the point where I think, is that Hugh Jackman? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, what I like is that Hugh Jackman's early career in the 90s involved a lot of stage work. He was in Beauty yeah. and the Beast, he was in Oklahoma mm. in the West End, and he definitely brings that experience to the prestige. Yeah, he really does, yeah. Because when Jackman's playing the great Danton, as in Angier when he's on the stage, I think he's excellent. He looks yeah. great in the tux, and his delivery of those he showman-style does. lines is perfect. Yeah. He really yeah. is yeah. the greatest showman in those moments. Yeah, yeah he can he really catch is, a top yeah. hat like no one I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh it's yeah. great. That. Yeah. Yeah. And his final monologue we talked about, it was the look on their faces. His delivery mm. of that speech is brilliant. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, two yeah. syllables, but brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> one of Hugh Jackman's best for me. But I like him in this a lot. Yeah, yeah, very similar. Think about Jackman; he can be quite hammy, but mm. I think the hamminess works in this character. Like yeah. even even at that intro when he and Borden get called up on stage. Borden just gets up and gets on with it. But Angie, he has to do a little bow yeah. to the crowd. He has yeah. to clear it up a bit. He has to sneak a little kiss on Julia's leg to see if he can get away with it. He's, he's a very theatrical character. That's where yeah. he's at home. So going to people on Rose Free and Four. <laughs> <laughs> Watch your sightlines. <laughs> and like, 
that theatricality it hides the fact that he he has quite a big ego like it is absolutely killing him that it's Root who takes the applause from the audience and he has to hide under the stage every time it's (laughs) killing him and the most interesting thing about his character though is that he changes and he changes from someone who's like hell bent on revenge because of the death of his wife to someone whose ego can't accept the fact that another magician might have a better trick than he does. Mm. That's what's important. And by the end, he actually says, I don't care about Julia. I care about his trick. Yeah, I care about yeah, his secret. Yeah. Like, Julia's forgotten about, which is a really yeah. shocking moment. So, yeah, for someone who can be quite hammy, I think Jackman does an absolute first-rate job here. I agree. And before Jackman was cast, Nolan did consider some other actors for the part of Angier. Did anyone know this? Did anyone know anybody? No. Well, go on then. I don't. With Josh Hartnett, who obviously he's brought back from Oppenheimer, who's come from nowhere and yeah. is incredible in that. Yeah, he's really good now. Yeah, yeah. Josh Hartnett. Before I'd seen Oppenheimer, I would have thought, mm. nah, he yeah, can't do yeah. anything. Sin City, <laughs> maybe, but like, yeah. Nolan's proved he can do it. And Britain's most ridiculous law, Jude, was, uh, <laughs> was up for the role. <laughs> I think that would have been quite good as well at the time. Mm, could say that. It's not confirmed if it was Angia or Borden, though, but I think it would have worked both ways. Nolan mm. said he cast Jackman because he has a wonderful understanding of the interaction between a performer and a live audience, and that's exactly right. That's exactly what I get from it. Yeah, it totally does. Christian Bale said that where Jackman had loads of stage experience, he himself had almost none. And I think that's mm. one of the reasons the casting works really well. Yeah, it really it does works. work really well. And I know that Jackman said that when he first heard about the prestige, neither of the two main roles had been cast. And his agent had said, well, why don't you go for Borden? Uh, but then when he met Nolan to talk about it, and Nolan asked him which role he preferred, Jackman said, well, actually, more we've talked, more I've thought about it. I think I'm better suited for Angier. Nice. Oh, I think he is, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. He did loads of research for the part too. He said that he learned a lot about Channing Pollock, who was a world famous American magician in the 1950s. And right. he had dresses exactly like him on the stage the black tuxedo oh, okay. and the white shirt yeah. and the white bow tie. Mm. Also, apparently, Channing Pollock was often billed as the most beautiful man in the world. Not magician. <laughs> the most beautiful no, man. No, no, man. <laughs> I'm just going to model myself off him. <laughs> Sound <Yeah>. I. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, there's his story, right? Oh, this sounds good. <laughs> well, honestly, right? You're not going to be able to guess where this goes. You turned into board there. This is story, right? This is story, right? <laughs> right. Part of his preparation, Jackman and his wife, they went to Las Vegas to go see a show by David Copperfield, obviously a huge, huge magician. Yeah. Then, absolutely massive. And he said, Copperfield met them afterwards and said, oh, why don't you come back to my place? Hackman's like, you're right, okay. Sorry, Jackman went, yeah, okay. Not Gene Hackman. <laughs> Would love Gene Hackman in there. Amazing. So they got in his car. And where Copperfield took them was a sex shop. Right. Copperfield <laughs> said to Jackman, push the nipple on that mannequin. So he did. And these huge doors swung open to reveal like a magic museum, which apparently is the size of four football pitches. And <laughs> it, it was half 12 in the morning by this point, but the Copperfield landed a 90-minute magic show for Jackman and his wife. Wow, David Copperfield. <laughs> <laughs> that was the name of the shop, yeah. <laughs> Copperfield. Yeah. Yeah, Jackman said that Copperfield showed them how Houdini pulled off his most famous water escape trick, but refused to reveal any of his own secrets, which is outrageous. Could yeah, you be asked at half twelve at night, having somebody <laughs> over and just being like, can you fill the tank? I'm going to do that yeah. one. Yeah. I couldn't even fill the bath, fuck that. <laughs> and did you know David Copperfield is the most commercially successful entertainer ever? Over wow. $4 billion in ticket sales. Wow. Wow. Think we can top that on Patreon? Um, I doubt it. <laughs> claim to make the Statue of Liberty disappear or something. <laughs> yeah. So, Hugh Jackman then, the great Danton mm. or the very good Danton? Great Danton. The excellent Danton. 
And Gia's main rival on and off stage is Alfred the Professor Borden, a talented working-class magician played by Christian Bale. Bale actually mm-hmm. plays three roles. The two twins, Albert and Frederick, who pretend to be the same person, and also mm-hmm. Borden's engineer, Bernard Fallon, mm-hmm. who's a right chatterbox, isn't he? <laughs> Can't shut him up. <laughs> Cotton wool in his mouth, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> so, Albert, Freddie and Fallon, what do we think of them and Christian Bale in the film, Matt? I absolutely love Christian Bale in this. I think Borden is a great character and there's such a good contrast to Angie and a great contrast between the two performances of Bale and uh, Jackman. And Angie, he has so much resentment towards Borden because Borden is the smarter of the two. Like when they go to see the Chinese magician, it's Borden who works mm. out how he does the trick with the goldfish ball and it's not at all what Angie thinks it is. And there's that <laughs> lovely line total devotion to his art, complete self-sacrifice, mm. which is just this wonderful foreshadowing as to what we're going to find out Borden has been willing to do to devote yeah. himself to his art and what he sacrificed. And it's this lovely plane of the contrast throughout, you know, they make the point several times, but he's not the showman that Angie is. He's actually pretty bad in that respect. You know, he's tetchy with the audience. He snaps at them. He doesn't have that ability to charm them or create the tension on stage that Angie can do. But what he does have is the technical ability and the ability to outthink everyone else. I love that bit in prison where it makes it look like he's messed up the disappearing ball trick in front of that guard who's been taking the piss. But he's only done that so he can slip the change on him, which is an even bigger trick. And yeah. he's get he gets dragged off. He's taken all the applause from all the other prisoners. That's brilliant. So yeah, even though he comes across as surly, and he does have the much more working class background compared to how stylish and refined Angie is, Barton still has the smarts, and it's a really good performance from Bale. And it's the type of performance that it's even better in retrospect once you know what's going on, and you realise just how nuanced he's been from scene to scene. Yeah, it's so cleverly done. Yeah. I think there's definitely a Mozart-Salieri-style relationship to Borden and Angier. Mm. And I think Nolan's yeah. consciously taken that dynamic as well because Bale said Nolan asked him to watch Amadeus. All right. Nice. right okay. yeah. yeah. Borden is a talented magician, Angier the excellent showman, and Bale and Jackman complement each other really well in that. Bale has this intensity mm. behind his eyes, not just here, yeah. always, and that fits yeah. the character of a weird, gifted magician hiding secrets very well. Mm. Where I said Jackman plays several versions of Angier, Bale literally plays two different characters in the Bordens. Obviously, we only know that second time around, but the brilliance of the performance is that on that first watch, you think Mm. he's just Alfred Borden. Mood swings, unpredictable, Mm -hmm. but definitely just Alfred Borden. Subsequent Mm. watches, when you know he's playing two brothers, not only can you see it, but it's actually pretty obvious. Yeah, it is. Albert, that's Sarah's Borden, seems a good man, decent, compassionate, Mm -hmm. he's the one who turns up for the funeral. Freddy, Olivia's Borden, is a prick. It's yeah. him who risks yeah. Julia's life, who mistreats Sarah, and Bale changes his voice between the characters too. If you listen, his cadence is much softer as Albert than as Freddy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. And also, I also love that bit in the jail where he chains the guard to the table. Brilliant, <laughs> yeah. <that. laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was going to touch on that. It's the duality of the performances. It is the Alfred and Freddy dynamic for me and how subtle that is and on repeat viewings how beautiful that is. What I do wonder in, at this point in the film is when Fallon is actually introduced and when the, the character of Fallon is actually introduced, is yeah. that after he sees the trick, 
with the fishbowl and he now he knows what he wants to do because he actually says nobody can do the trick that I'm going to do I know the greatest trick that I'm going to do mm. and he says he's going to do it like he's planning it almost and I would have loved to have seen a younger Bale like a little kid dressed as Fallon big hamster cheeks yeah you're like, yeah, you have to be Fallon and Borden all the time since <laughs> so I'm like six years old and he has to just play that all the way through that would have been great but yeah it's them it's them subtleties them nuances that do you love me not today you can tell yeah. Freddie's yeah. just real and he wants he wants what Adam Gio wants he wants mm-hmm. that to be the best he, he loves magic whereas Alfred just wants to live he wants to leave everybody alone he wants mm-hmm. to just be part and just be and it's so beautiful to see the, like, like John said how nuanced that is that scene when Sarah first meets Fallon, that's the same scene as when she tells Borden that she's pregnant. So they've already yeah. been carrying that on for a good few months, you would think. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, But it's yeah. then she tells Freddy, because then he says, we should have told Fallon. Yeah. So Alfred yeah. is Fallon, and yeah, he's yeah. left and didn't get the news. Right, uh, I'll take that in. That's lovely. That's what he means, yeah. yeah. But when he says that, Sarah gives this little look as if to say, that's a weird thing to say, which it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is. What's got to do with Fallon? Oh, we yeah. should have told Fallon. <laughs> Why? <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 and obviously this point Nolan Bale that worked together previously on Batman Begins but really Nolan just hadn't considered him at all for the prestige Bale did get hold of the script though read it loved Borden so it was him who contacted Nolan again about being cast yeah Nolan later said that he actually had no idea how Bale got hold of the script <laughs> <laughs> but now he thought it was unthinkable <laughs> for anybody else to have been Borden and yeah. Bale was the only actor who read the original novel as well because Nolan suggested right. to the cast that they shouldn't read it but Bale just does what he likes. Yeah, no, fuck I you. Just know, no rules. <laughs> he probably had no intention of reading it until Nolan told him not to. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, that's what Freddie would do. Yeah. <laughs> we mentioned Angie's wife Julia earlier, so we should talk about Borden's partners too. That's yeah. the tragic Sarah Borden, played by Rebecca Hall, mm-hmm. and magician's assistant Olivia Wenscombe, played by Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are they in the film? Well, with Rebecca Hall, I think. Like, if I have one criticism of Nolan in general, he doesn't write female characters particularly well, I oh, don't yeah, think. They're, they're very rarely proactive or have their own agency. They're just kind of reacting to what the male character is doing yeah. and what the male character is doing in the narrative. They just follow along. But he always gets safe because he always casts really well. And that's yeah. what I feel about Rebecca Hall. You know, pretty thinly written character. But a really good performance by Hall. Really saves it. Like, completely feel all that confusion she feels throughout, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously, is it Freddy? Who is she talking to from scene to scene? Completely get that torment. She, she has, like, trying to figure out what's going on. And what's interesting is, before you get the scene for she does hang herself, which really, like, breaks your heart. There's that yeah. scene with Sarah yells, I know what you are with him, which makes it sound like Sarah knew Borden was two people, when she actually doesn't. And Hall had ad-libbed that and thought, oh, Nolan's going to ask me to do the scene again. But Nolan mm-hmm. actually really liked it and kept it in. Nice. Just like messing with our heads, Northern, doesn't he? <laughs> he does, yeah, yeah, yeah. He really does. Bizarre. Leave it there. Yeah, I think she's a brilliant actress, Rebecca Hall. Mm-hmm. I think she's excellent she here. I like the moment after Sarah and Borden's first date when Borden leaves, but then is in her room when she goes in, like Drooby, mm-hmm. just turns yeah. up. But she just yeah. laughs instead of screaming yeah, the place yeah. down. It's really <laughs> yeah. awful behaviour. Yeah, I mean, both amazing, but I'm going to touch on Scarlett Johansson as Olivia because I think she, as an actress, 
as a whole is incredibly underrated. Um, I mean, that performance is in Under the Skin, Lost in Translation, Marriage yeah. Story recently, Jojo yeah. Rabbit recently. And she's mm-hmm. got such an elegance to this performance and such a mm-hmm. twisty performance in that she's just learning what's happening as it's happening. And like you said there, Matt, he's not good at writing female characters, but she no. certainly holds her own ear because mm-hmm. she is yeah. the scapegoat for everything. Is mm-hmm. she responsible yeah. for that? Is she taking mm-hmm. diaries and stealing things and she's completely untrustworthy? And she is the female version of Freddy, and she's playing that really well. I feel like she plays a duality to the character. You know, when he comes back and says, are you still here? And she's like, I've got yeah. nowhere else to go. I'm thinking, is that her twin sister? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's this spinning around and, and working that way. But she is being used all the way through the film, and she can be. She could be a bit of like, oh, she's a nightmare, and she's a scapegoat, mm. and she just wants her own way. But she does have this honesty, and like I say, this elegance that she brings to the character, and I think she's absolutely brilliant in the film. Does anyone not like Scarlett Johansson? Always a delight. I've yet to find anyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some people criticise her Cockney accent here, and it isn't great, but I don't mind it. I don't no, mind it. Of course it. not. It's hardly Dick Van Dyke, is it? Exactly. There's <laughs> much worse out there. Imagine him turning up with a chimney sweep brush. <laughs> <laughs> it's all me bows. <laughs> <laughs> but you were saying before there, Matt, that Sarah didn't know about Borden, even though it seems like she might. With Olivia, mm-hmm, yeah. I think it might be the opposite. In that scene where right. she dumps board and she says to him, you could be in some other restaurant with some other woman right now talking about me that way. Yeah. Why else would you say that unless she knows Borden's two people? Yeah. She even tells Angie that Borden's using a double. So I think she might know. Yeah, yeah, she sees that. Yeah, and she doesn't want to know from Sarah because she doesn't want to meet her and find yeah. out because she said she mm-hmm. knew about you, but mm-hmm. I didn't have the courage to face her. I yeah, was a coward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, Maybe she didn't really want to know the truth, but she just suspected it all along. Much like the audience. Yeah. Mm. Another Patreon question now. It's about the cast, and it comes from Biggie. Hello, Biggie. Hello, Biggie. So Biggie's asking us, which real magicians would you choose to cast the main leads? And mm. Biggie has some suggestions. Darren Brown, David Blaine, Penn and Teller, Paul Daniels, Dynamo. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you think, Matt? Well, I think David Blaine as Angie, he'd be absolutely fine trapped in a box for like <laughs> days upon days, wouldn't he? Yeah. You know, he'd like it if anything. He'd absolutely yeah. love it. The whole, film. whole week, exactly, yeah. whole week. Um, so yeah, David Blaine as Angie, and then um, obviously Tommy Cooper as Borden. <laughs> fez going round in a fez. <laughs> fez or no fez? That's his fez or no fez? Yeah. <laughs> Fezin. <laughs> well, both of my choices would be two. A biggie mentioned there. I once went on a date with this girl who said that she went to school with Dynamo and a load of her schoolmates stuffed him into a bin and pushed it down a hill and that's why she said he turned into a magician. (laughs) Not from the running man. (laughs) But I mean, that's like a real life superhero origin story that. So get that in there. Dynamo's the put upon Borden figure and as Angia, it's got to be the man who excels, Paul Daniels. Picture (laughs) the transporting man with Daniels. When Angieri appears, he says, man's grasp exceeds his imagination. There'd be no pretentious yeah. talk from Daniels. he just reappear no. and go, that's magic. That's yeah. what you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine the loads of little Daniels tones knocking about. Yeah. Running riots oh. like gremlins. <laughs> Terrifying. Debbie McGee hanging herself. <laughs> <laughs> sick of this shit, Paul. Well, I wouldn't have blamed her anyway if that had happened. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and Westy, the magicians for you? I'll go for Tommy Cooper as Angie because I think that would be incredible. He's got the performance in the old coming out of the transported man with the old, just like that, yeah. would be fucking incredible. But also on the on the opposite side, because I do love a goth, I would have Chris Angel as Borden. 
black hair sweeped over, oh, really yes. violent yeah, magician. Yeah. And then <laughs> you have Tommy Cooper trying to keep up with Chris Angel. I think that would be incredible. <laughs> we also had a very similar question from Ryan Shapo, or rather his daughter, Cora, right. mm-hmm. who asked which of the actors we'd cast in the two leads. Hopefully that's kind of answered Cora's question too. Yeah. I mean, Cora's favourite films are Back to the Future and Dirty Dancing. Oh, well, there you go. So she knows a good film when she sees one. What a hero. Yeah. Kind of feel like Cora's favourite film should be Ryan's daughter, but we can live with Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah, of course. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. Back to the cast and Michael Keane's in there too, obviously, as Angia's engineer cutter. How good is he? Great. Always oh, great. He's always great. He plays pretty much the same role in every single Nolan film, yeah. but I don't care. <laughs> oh, I, I just want to see him in there. Yeah, yeah. he's so brilliant. good. He is brilliant. But I read an interview with Kane where he said he changed his voice to play Cutter. No, he didn't. He hasn't changed his voice since Zulu. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds exactly like Michael Kane to me. If anything, even more than usual. <laughs> does, yeah. If I can see you kissing your wife's leg, soaking the blokes in rows free and four. <laughs> The size of a tangerine. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It sounds like he's doing an impression of himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, you haven't given up on me. Never. <laughs> Never. David Bowie has an important part to play too as Tesla, and we'll be talking about mm-hmm. him shortly with Andy Serkis oh, yeah. Ali, and yeah. Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan's own son Oliver is in there. Oh, really? He plays the Bourne's daughter Jess when she's a baby. Oh, ah, right, right. Okay. okay. I'm glad he said baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is real magic. <laughs> so, an all-star cast in the prestige, and in our two leads of Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, excellent from both. Oh, yeah. Brilliant. Definitely. This episode of All the Right Movies is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now, you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And, special offer to all the Right Movies listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash A-T-R-M. That's betterhelp.com slash A-T-R-M. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The Middle The second act is called The Turn. The magician takes Mm -hmm. the ordinary something and makes it into something extraordinary. Mm. That's what Nolan does in The Prestige, and we have a couple of great sequences that exemplify it. Mm -hmm. Nikola Tesla and the spiders from Mars are on the way. (laughs) (laughs) Bowie goes electric. (laughs) (laughs) But before that, we've got a couple of men to transport, don't we? Mm. We do. do. Mm -hmm. And Gia and Borden's rivalry is already underway and then goes up several notches of intensity when Borden invents a magic trick and Gia steals it. It's the transporting man. Mm-hmm. Is it the greatest magic trick you've ever seen, Matt? 
I mean, it's got to be up there just from Angie's reaction alone yeah. when he comes yeah. back from having watched it. And it's such a key scene because it goes back to what I was saying about Nolan as director. The film has been a metaphor for being a director because Nolan isn't, he literally isn't shown us the trick as in yeah. the actual trick on stage. He's, key, he's still keeping it a secret. He's yeah. making us look elsewhere and we really want to see yeah. it just because of Angie's reaction. You can hear that ball bouncing and then it stops and then there's just like... And you think, is it shit or is it good? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is it? I'm so desperate to see what he's seen. So we want to see the trick both in terms of how it affects the narrative and what it actually is. He's just got us in the palm of his hand. Yeah. It's amazing. And it's so funny when you see Borden because he's working these shitty little halls. The audience just seem bored. There's maybe like two dozen people there. Mm. So he's still not this natural showman. Mm. What on earth could this trick be then? That is so good with a ball and two wardrobes. Like, Angia has so much more in terms of presence and budget and presentation. But Borden is still beating them all ends up and you're just dying to know what it is. And the great thing is, Cutter spots it immediately, will use as a double. Mm. But Angia is so arrogant about it he refuses to believe that it can't simply be a double mm-hmm. to fool him the great Danton it's yeah. got to be something much bigger no 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 it's something else and that's the biggest irony in the film the answer was there all along mm-hmm. right in front of him and could have had it worked out like that yeah but Angie is his own worst enemy because he's so egotistical it, it's brilliant in terms of character writing this scene yeah Born before me the trick for the first time I think it's excellent and it's not because mm-hmm. of the trick itself because like you say Matt we barely see it but yeah. this is the point that I think if anyone had any doubts about Christopher Nolan being a proper dramatic filmmaker, not just a superhero yeah. guy, I think this yeah. minute or so might have got rid of those doubts. Because the yeah. build-up is Angia telling Olivia he's been to see Borden's show and Borden did a new trick. Mm-hmm. She asks if it was good and Angia is totally shell-shocked and says, yeah. it was the greatest magic trick I've ever seen. Cut to Borden on stage and nobody is looking away at that point. Nah. No, but no. then Nolan cuts again, like you say, before we get to see the trick. Mm-hmm. Leaves to our imagination. It's only 20 or 30 seconds and fairly simple, but good writing, mm-hmm. good line delivery, good editing, all combined really well. It's one mm-hmm. of my favourite moments in the film. Yeah, it's wonderful. For me, the genius of this is the the transition between Angia's take on it and how much he improves on it and how theatrically mm-hmm. he makes it. Yeah, it's not yeah. two wardrobes facing you. It's two mm-hmm. doors that you only see the sides of for a yeah. start. And yeah, it's the way yeah. he kind of walks through everything and Olivia's part of it and how she's going to be part of it. And it's, he's revealing everything to Olivia. He's, he's shown us the prestige before he's shown us the pledge and the turn. So he's, he's actually mm. shown us the trick first. So we are, are spoilt by it. And <laughs> yeah, he doesn't yeah. show you it from Borton's point of view, but he shows it from Angier's point of view. And when that comes to pass... And you see Root going through it, and you go, he's not going to be able to do this. He's like, yeah, if I'm drunk, I'm just going to fucking go through it, it'd be no problem. And he comes through and he performs it. And you just think, yeah, that's you, Jackman. Yeah, it looks exactly, it's going to be perfect. It's really, really good. And from that moment where he's just the people of the Himalayas and the fog. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah, and all that. How can you doubt that? Just, I don't know even where that is. These people are so exotic. They must do this all the time. Yeah. Like, is, is that how you go to the supermarket? Just walk through one door and then you're in the Asda. You know what I mean? Like Mr. Ben. Yeah. <laughs> exactly the same. But it's it's the drama and the theatre and the way this yeah. is shot so much wider with so mm. much grandeur and yeah. the lighting so much more intense. And he mm. throws that hat and you think, 
he's not going to catch that. And it does, yeah. and it works perfectly. And the way Root grabs Olivia and kisses her, yeah. and everyone's kind of laughing. And the bit for me is, we've touched on this before, but when his arms are outstretched and that light's bleeding through the wood and he's oh, under the stage and he's, he's yeah. denied the audience. That's how yeah. Chris Nolan feels, I would imagine. Everyone's sitting at home appreciating his films or sitting in front of the screen and he cannot see that applause. But yeah, it's just brilliant, brilliant transition between the two and a brilliant metaphor for how far Andrew is willing to go and how much of a better performer he is but not a better magician the audacity of Angier is outrageous just totally steals Borden's trick even <laughs> mm. does it the same way by vanishing behind <laughs> yeah. one door and appearing from behind another just calls it the new transport man <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a dick <laughs> but you're right Westy like you say he's a showman and Angier dresses it up way better than what Borden yeah. does throwing the top yeah. hat for Root to catch at the other end that's great yeah, he does pull it off. A lot of it's cutter as well, though he needs cutter to yeah. get all this across yeah. massively. Yeah. A bit risky, though, seeing his roots permanently hammered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does look like him, though. <laughs> yeah. And talking about Root, the makeup work on him has some classic Nolan attention to detail. So, Leo Corey Castanello, he was the makeup artist for the prosthetics, and he did a prosthetic nose, mouth, and earlobes, too. And if you watch closely, as the film tells you to, mm-hmm. you'll see Angie's earlobes are attached, but Root's aren't. Right, yeah, yeah. You can you can tell. Yeah, I think the makeup work on Root's superb. The first time I saw yes. the film, I honestly wasn't totally certain if it was Hugh Jackman or not. I'm still yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> Even when that camera's like circling around them, and you just mm. think, that's not the same person. Do you really yeah. have to do that? Yeah, the prosthetics are that good. I also like how Borden plants the idea in Root's mind that he's so important he can demand more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does an inception on him. He, yeah, does, he does, yeah, by making him believe that he is actually Angier. And he's like, yeah, yeah. someone work for me. He's like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So we're not at the cloning stage just yet, but Angia's hands are getting dirtier by the second. Mm-hmm. Yep. Growing more and more obsessed with learning Borna's method for the transport in man, Angia starts to lose the plot, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. After burying Fallon alive to make Borden give up his secret, <laughs> Angia heads off to Colorado Springs in search of famed Serbian-American inventor Nikola Tesla. Mm-hmm. David Bowie and Andy Serkis together at last, Westy. <laughs> together at last <laughs> how was it for you what a double team yeah. both of them wonderful really really theatrical both of them excellent mm. I think Circus is great in this scene how uninterested he is by what's going on yeah. and he's just oh yeah, do you want to stand back a little bit give any treat just that little spin with the hat as if he's <laughs> a magician he's yeah. fucking great isn't he he's just really playing it up but I love seeing boys just sat there with that book shuts it and he's like I want to, you want to see what all this money's paid for and stands there completely dumbfounded by what's not worked and I think it's really, really funny, this scene. If you're going to, is there anything in the prestige that's quite funny? It's like, yeah, when this doesn't work and the steam comes up from either side. And then Circus is like, yeah, okay, come back next week, two weeks, come back next week. <laughs> it leads them on. It's a really short scene, but it's just so well done because it's built up to the point where you think, this is so dramatic, it's so theatrical, It's this is what your money's paid for. Stand mm. back, give us your hat. And then it's just, you know, two puffs of smoke. And then Bowie's expressions wonderful as Tesla looking down thinking I had this this should have worked why hasn't it worked you know it's mm. cut straight from there it's great yeah how beautiful does Colorado look oh yeah all yeah. the sequences here are so well shot I yeah. like it when Angia gets there and he's amazed the whole town has electricity reminder of <laughs> how simple like a technological time we're dealing with and there's very few people could pull off an entrance emerging from a huge burning ball of electricity but David Bowie's one of them exactly always great to see him 
Yeah, he's like the yeah, Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> Clothes, though, thankfully, yeah. Yeah, thankfully, yeah. <laughs> and I like Andy Serkis here, too, with Tesla's weird mm-hmm. little helper, Mr. Ali. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I like when Ali goes to meet Angie in the hotel, and he says to the waiter, mm-hmm. two of them, two of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also, if you're going to tell someone that you'll make them a machine that instantly transports someone from one place to another, when you turn it on, make sure it works, eh? Embarrassed yeah. himself, <laughs> Tesla. <Yeah. laughs> I think it has worked before, and it just didn't work this time for some reason. Otherwise, why would you do it? Yeah. Well, when he does go back for the second time, and they bring the cat out, I think like <laughs> they've already killed Julia by this point. They've massacred I don't know how many birds. So I genuinely have faith for the cat's life, and I think yeah. I, I don't want to see a cat like disappear in like a ball of flame. To be honest, but it's just so good how it's so casual in introducing the science fiction element into the story yeah. because so far it's been a pure mystery you know backstabbing and all the like but now we're in a completely different genre and it's done so well you barely even notice this turn into something different you just go yeah fine makes sense to me it, it's so confident in itself and mm. where it's going but the mystery is so well maintained as well like what is this machine what is he buying and when it starts sparking up what it reminds me of is all your like lab equipment you see in, you know in the, the Frankenstein movies from the 30s yeah, and 40s yeah, yeah. universe ones yeah, it's young Frankenstein isn't it young Frankenstein <laughs> yeah sedative <laughs> <laughs> love all that stuff and because it still has this mystery you still don't know if you can trust Tesla in Borden's last diary entry, it suggests it's all been a wild goose chase to waste Sanji's time. Yeah. So for that second cat to turn up, just when you think it's all a big con, and you realise this story has gone somewhere else entirely, in a film full of constant twists and moments to make you reevaluate what you've just seen, I think this one might be the best because you're just in a well, different world now yeah. in, in this film. And you know, I do love returning to that visual of the hats. Nanji just goes, "Which hat is mine? They're all your hats." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When Tesla gets that cut out, I'm like. I hope this goes well. Imagine it had been a dog. There'd have been riots. Oh. <laughs> yeah, even worse. Also, though, Angia finds all the cloned hats when he leaves. How did Tesla mm. or Ali not see them? They're right next to the gate. <laughs> He's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it did work. Oh, shit. Just landed in the wrong place when they're cloned. Well, <laughs> exactly. that's a theory, isn't it? Yeah. So Nolan only ever wanted Bowie to play Tesla, but Bowie first turned Nolan down, so Nolan personally flew out to meet him to convince him. He said to Bowie that no one else could play the part except him. It was the only time Nolan went back to an actor who said no, and he said, I would say I begged him. Everyone's begging Nolan now, but like, yeah, yeah, Bowie's incredible. Everyone's been begging Bowie for 50 years. He'd be used to it. Yeah, he's used to it. it. I mean, he's the right age. He's creative. He's a bit weird. I don't find it hard Mm. at all to imagine Nolan being a big Bowie fan. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Also, we should mention the production design work. I really like the design of Tesla's machine and Mm -hmm. loves a contraption, Nolan, doesn't he? Tesla's machine, it does. the algorithm yeah. in Tenet, the dream machine yeah. in Inception, loves it. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the production design's excellent throughout. The production designer was Nathan Crowley, Nolan's go-to guy, and his team mm. scouted 70 locations in LA that looked like turn-of-the-century London. They filmed in Colorado, too. Right. And they also turned part of the Universal backlot into Victorian London. Have you seen any behind-the-scenes footage of that? No. It's no. huge. Like four right, or five right. streets, really impressive. And there was only one oh, interior okay. set built, which was the under the stage set we see at the start and at the end. Yeah. All oh, right. Always yeah. the big champion of practical effects, Nolan. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So Nolan wanted to be able to visualize the film when he was writing the script. So you had Nathan Crowley start designing the sets in his garage while the Nolans were writing the script. I mean, how big's his fucking garage? 
<laughs> yeah, he did the same on Batman Begins. Nolan had Nathan yeah. Crowley build a Gotham City model in his garage. He was writing the script. <laughs> Must have a double garage, surely. Yeah. <laughs> Tesla's machine in one corner, the Batmobile in the other <laughs> corner. Yeah. <laughs> like Doc Brown's in Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's not the scale I painted. Yeah. <laughs> What I like, though, is uh, as well as the Borden and G rivalry, we see a few notes in the film to the real life rivalry between Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison, mm-hmm. which was over who was going to lead the breakthrough in engineering and alternating current back in the late 19th century. So we see Ali demonstrate Tesla's alternating current machine to a crowd in London. And if you notice, when that doesn't go well, there's a man shouting about how that machine isn't safe. Yeah. Well, Later on, when Angie was in Colorado and the hotel manager says, oh, Edison's men have been around. Angie goes outside and, it, and he sees that same man there. So he's been working for Edison all along. Right, right. Yeah, one of the themes of the film, I think, is rivalry. Mainly it's Angie mm-hmm. yeah, Borden, yeah. but also Sarah mm-hmm. and Olivia are rivals for Borden's affections and Tesla and Edison are rivals too. I also think that Bowie gets one of the best lines in the film where Angie mm-hmm. tells Tesla price is no object in creating a machine yeah. and Tesla says, perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. To sign off on the Nikola Tesla sequences, it's our third and final Perion question. Mm. This time from Jack Brosnan. Hello, Jack. Hello, Jack. So Jack asks, David Bowie as Tesla is an incredible piece of casting. Is it the best casting of a minor role, or is there a better example? What do you think, Rusty? I'm going to go for Bowie again in Zoolander. <laughs> like, it's a good example there you are I think it's just totally unexpected and I, I doubt he would have been begged for that I think he would have loved no. to have been part of that it's just so much fun and it is great and I'm just sticking with the Bowie reference so yeah I'm going with that yeah <laughs> I'm going to go for David Bowie in extras <laughs> it's not a film though that was yeah, my first choice chubby little loser brilliant <laughs> chubby little fat man <laughs> But the casting director was John Papsadera. When he read the script for The Prestige, he must have been like, Chris, who on earth are we going to get to play Nikola Tesla? David Bowie? Oh, fine then. No problem. Yeah, yeah. Done. Just no say worries. that. Cheers. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw The Prestige, I didn't know Bowie was in the film, and it's still probably the most joyous character reveal I've ever seen. <laughs> Hung over, didn't know what was going on, still pleased to see Bowie. Yeah, that was the only bit you understood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, do I think it's a great acting performance from David Bowie? Probably not, but what a presence he has. Yeah. yeah. They might as well have just called the character David Boy. Yeah. Write <laughs> <laughs> down your method board and boy. <laughs> <laughs> like you and Labyrinth, but opposite that. <laughs> <laughs> but Jack's question, I mean, Bill Murray has a good cameo in Zombieland. Zombieland I like Kate yeah, Blanchett's yeah. appearance in Hot Fuzz, where she wears a mask so you can't tell her. Oh, yeah. She's really funny, yeah. Two of the musician roles I like are Keith Richards as Jack Sparrow's dad and Bruce Springsteen right. High Fidelity. But yeah, Bowie mm-hmm. takes some topping, I think. Yeah. I've always had a real fondness because of how ridiculous it is, but how good is it in Prince of Thieves when Sean Connery turns up at the end? <laughs> Fantastic. Brilliant. Brilliant. Exactly who you want to be. Exactly it? who you King want to be. King Richard. That's King yeah. Richard. King Richard. There you go. Sean Connery, Prince of Thieves. Yeah. Love it. Nice. And we're at the end of the turn. We've seen The Extraordinary and it doesn't disappoint. I mean, how could mm. it when you've got the thin white duke in there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if anything, it just gets more bonkers from now, doesn't it? It does. Oh, yeah. Yep. The crew. As a filmmaker, Christopher Nolan likes to forge long-term relationships and the behind-the-scenes team on The Prestige included many people who had worked with Nolan before. Mm-hmm. Two of those were composer David Julian and director of photography Wally Pfister. We'll talk about both. 
let's start with the writers, though, do you think? Yes. Yep. So the screenwriters of The Prestige were Christopher and Jonathan Nolan, adapting Christopher Priest's novel of the same name. The brothers had worked together on Memento, but The Prestige was the first time they had a co-writing credit. Mm. Yep. So how did they go, Matt? I think it went pretty well for them, didn't it? Um, <laughs> God, there's just so much to admire in this writing. It's narratively complex. It's narration within narration, constantly shifting timelines. But what stands out for me is the fact that apart from all that, which is impressive in itself, there's a lot going on here thematically and with the characters. And one aspect I find really fascinating is that depending on whereabouts you are in the narrative, it's kind of impossible to determine who's the protagonist and who's the antagonist. Is, yeah. is, is Borden the bad guy in all of this? Should I be rooting for Angie? Because it does seem like Borden is being set up as the bad guy. He's on death row. He's responsible for the death of Julia. But then just when you think you've got a handle on that, it flips. And Angie forgets about Julia, forgets about his dead wife, and just lets jealousy become his motivation. He, he treats Olivia like shit, telling her to go and do this, go and do that. Then again, he's the one trying to find out how to do this amazing trick that Borden does. So we're still kind of on his side because we want to find out with him. And then Borden, we see that he's a great dad. His behavior as a husband is another thing entirely, but that gets explained at the end. But then he's the one who escalates the feud in the first place by destroying the bird trick. So you get to the end. And ultimately, I think it does feel very satisfying to think Borden is probably the better person out of the two of them. But the fact that you can never get a firm grip on who you should sympathise with from scene to scene, that's one of the many things that just tells me like how well written this script is. It is a pretty interesting relationship between the protagonist and antagonist, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, really is. I also like the themes the film tackles. Obsession, I mentioned. Rivalry, I mentioned. Capitalism and identity are classic Nolan themes. Mm-hmm. And both are in there too. What I'm going to talk about more, though, is the big twist that Alfred Borden is actually a set of twins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As Ali might say, there's two of them. <laughs> <laughs> a movie twist, I think, has two states, before and after. The first time round, before we know the twist, it's all about the shock of the reveal. Rewatches after we know the twist are about our perception of the film changing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the shock factor of the twin reveal is that strong seen that kind of thing before Mm. and Cutter and Olivia even tell us Borden's using a double so it doesn't come from nowhere Mm -hmm. the rewatches though after we know Borden is two people this is where the twist really works in most good movie twists there might be four or five moments where you go ah right I didn't see that first time round in the prestige almost every scene with Borden has one of those moments it's astonishing there's loads of examples but two favourites near the start Borden narrates we were two young men devoted to an illusion, two young men who never intended to hurt anyone. At first, we think he's talking about Angia, yeah. but he's not. He's yeah. talking about his twin. Yeah. yeah. Then, the dinner scene late on with Borden and Sarah after Fallon's been buried alive. Borden's drunken shouts, my new trick is someone will dig me up every night. On rewatches, that isn't the guy who saved Fallon from being buried alive. It's the guy who was buried alive. And speaking of Fallon, he's ludicrous <laughs> the makeup job is great so it doesn't look like christian bale at all mm. but when you watch back it's so, so obvious, obvious mm-hmm. yeah. fallon's mm. always there skulking in the background <laughs> yeah. but never says anything or does anything sarah even says to borden at one point once you know it's so obvious and that's what she means hiding in plain sight yeah so not great as a big shock reveal i don't think the borden method but superb to watch the detail on rewatches yeah and also i mentioned at the start that i have a westy theory that's okay. coming in the end section. Oh, right. right. <laughs> Good, at least I know now. Bated breath for me. <laughs> Can't wait. So, if you want to hear more nonsense from me, unlikely, but stick around. <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, these guys must get on, mustn't they? Because I think this is a really <laughs> strong, yeah. really strong collaboration. Yeah. And you can't, this, it doesn't feel like this is written by two people or three people because it is in fact based on, the, on a novel. It feels like it's very, very streamlined and very, very confident and very self-assured. And it's the fact, how factual this feels, the science it's brought into it, the way that the engineering's brought into the magic side, the way that you just think, is this a period piece or is this a, is this fantasy? Is this fictional? Is this, is this based on a true story? You know, the, the base and the characters on real characters, the base and situations on real situations. You know, Tesla de- definitely existed. This shit really happened, you know, and just think, well, did he invent? this and has it just been hidden and that's one of the classic Nolan traits is that all of his fiction is actually buried in fact in real fact and I think that's where his confidence comes from and I think it's the same with Jonathan Nolan when he went on with that Westworld into that series it has a very very real feel a very factual Mm. feel it doesn't feel fantastical at all it feels like it's grounded in this reality and they both understand that I mean there must have been such a joy to play with his kids like are the Nolan lads coming out (laughs) nah (laughs) (laughs) what do you want to do I just want to to make some notes and just manipulate time what the fuck are you doing alright nice one where does to get lady interested in that nah nah I'm fine I'm fine with that I, I, I don't like female characters oh that's absolutely fine then. <laughs> but it is, is really hard to argue with and I think looking at it you know from a fact point of view I think Jonathan Nolan loved the novel he adapted the novel and then Chris came in and just went right that's brilliant but can I just chop it up and change the timelines completely and put this over <laughs> yeah. here and that over there yeah. and then I think they refined it so I think Chris Nolan brought the, the narrative and the time element and Jonathan brought everything else to it with the dialogue as well as incredible in the film all the way through very very believable it's a very believable story even though mm-hmm. it's so fantastical i think only these two guys could have written such a thing yeah yeah getting into this film for this episode i was kind of thinking what if one of my mates did this what borden <laughs> does how would you know yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean matt went for a break before he was came back yeah exactly, yeah, he knows. exactly. Yeah. He knows. Yeah. stick on beard yeah i've got earlobes yeah <laughs> yeah so as you might expect some pretty big changes from the novel so in the book Borden and Angier's rivalry that begins when Borden ruins a seance that Angier and his wife are holding and they actually get into a physical fight and Julia's thrown to the ground and she survives but she has a miscarriage right like seances were a big deal in Victorian yeah. England mm-hmm. so yeah. that's a nice touch like yeah. historical accuracy but I think a miscarriage is a bit too grim yeah for me I think so yeah. I mean the film isn't exactly raindrops on roses but that was no. a good change yeah. I think yeah Definitely. Yeah, just straight up death. Yeah. <laughs> also in the film, Tesla's machine seems to work by duplicating a person exactly as they are at that moment and then transporting them a few hundred metres away. But in the book, what the machine does is it transports the essence of the person into a newly created body, leaving a dead husk behind. All oh, right. A husk. A husk. <laughs> That's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although that would mean Angie could have called himself the incredible husk. Which would be great. <laughs> <laughs> What a story note that would be. (laughs) Also in the book, Borden isn't framed by Angia and he does actually wreck Angia's trick. He tries to sabotage it and in doing so he creates two Angias. One is sick because he's had half his essence taken out of him and the other one is this ghostly figure who has to concentrate to become solid. Wow. Sounds like Rima in Red Dwarf. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a big change made to the narrative structure. In the book, there's a subplot set in the modern day that revolves around the great-grandchildren of Angier and Borden and how they're affected by the events that we see in the film. Nolan took that out entirely, yeah. which I'm glad about. Yeah, the last thing so. we need is yet another timeline. I know going to say, yeah. <laughs> it's getting too confusing now. <laughs> yeah. Also in the book, Robert Angier is called Rupert Angier. Right. right. 
That's the best change of the lot, that. Uh, easily. <laughs> Can't dig a character suit to call Rupert. <laughs> no. And like I was saying on my bit, my interpretation of the script, how it feels so real life, but Nolan actually said he did very little research for the film in terms of how magicians did their tricks and just made some of it up. But he did take elements from real life. I mean, the fact that he made some of this up is just outrageous. <laughs> Crazy. Should be a magician. I totally <laughs> believe him. Totally. Yeah. The real Tesla did experiments in Colorado Springs and invented a machine called the magnifying transmitter that was designed to transport electrical energy, which I totally believe. That was the inspiration for the machine used in this film. Yeah, I won't go into it now, but if you read about the real Tesla, he invented some crazy things. Yeah. A really fascinating yeah. man. The vanishing birdcage trick that Angia does early in the film was the trademark trick of famous magician Harry Blackston, known as the Great Blackston. Someone has called themselves the Great, <laughs> <laughs> which is fantastic. It was then carried on by his son, Harry Blackston Jr., not Great Harry Blackston, Great the Junior Great. <laughs> so... The dad gets the great Blackstone, yeah. the son gets Harry Blackstone Jr. Yeah, <laughs> not so great. Yeah. The all right Harry Blackstone Jr. <laughs> also, apparently, Harry Blackstone Jr.'s claim to fame was pulling 80,000 rabbits from his sleeve. What? 80,000? In total, I think, not like all together. Oh, I was going to say. Gonna say like, yeah. yeah, longest trick ever. Like, yeah. like, like clowns Just, coming out of a car. Yeah, just three rabbits giving birth down his collar. <laughs> in the bullet catching scene, before Angia shoots Borden, we see a list of who's on the bill behind Borden, and one of the names is Harry Dresden, a character from a series of books about magic called the Dresden Files. Mm. Yeah, I've heard of those. Yeah. Yeah, Harry Dresden's a private investigator and a wizard, which is some combo. Wow, <laughs> brilliant. Also, Chung Ling Su, the magician that Angia and Borden go to see at the start that we talked about, yep. he was a real magician. Right, right. His name was William Ellsworth Robinson. He was white and disguised himself as a Chinese man and never broke the act or spoke any English when he was in public. Right. Wow. Imagine if, like, Darren Brown did that now. Cancelled. <laughs> 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 Wouldn't be able to call yourself great for that now, would you? Yeah. No, definitely not. The cancelled Darren Brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he apparently had a rivalry with a real Chinese magician called Ching Ling Fu. And he died when a bullet catch trick went wrong. And his last words, apparently, were, my God, I've been shot. So, not just died, he gave the game away with his final words. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, Chung Ling Su, total devotion to his art. Too much devotion for me. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. too much. Yeah. Same last words as Sam Cooke. And if you look at the two main characters, obviously, Alfred Borden, Robert Angier, their initials spell out Abra when you combine them, as in Abracadabra. Oh, right. And also, nice. we, we only get hints in the film... Whereas, if you read the book, it's explicit, but the Borden twins do have individual names, obviously. Sarah's Borden, that's Albert. Olivia's Borden is called Frederick. So when they Frederick, become yeah. one person, they combine the names to become Alfred Borden. Nice. That's right, yeah. yeah. So that's why Olivia calls Borden Freddy. Yeah. Yeah. And presumably you tell Sarah, you can call me Al, like Paul Simon. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> but totally normal guy, this Borden fella, yeah. isn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He loves that one, doesn't he, Nolan? Let's just say, what is that word? Let's just make names out of that. What's it? Yeah. Dreams for Inception. Uh, yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the writing on the prestige, full of twists and turns, and for us, excellent. Excellent. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how they did it. It's magic. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to the music, and the composer on the prestige was David Julian. Yep. He'd been with Christopher Nolan since the start, working with him on two short films, and then following Memento, Insomnia, and The Prestige. Mm-hmm. So how was David Julian's work here, Westy? I really relate David Julian's work to early Chris Nolan stuff. Every time I hear it, it's just reminiscent of yeah. that time. 
and they all seem very similar in tone. I don't think I've heard a David Julian and Chris Nolan combination that's upbeat at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's no real room for that. They're all very brooding, all very dark, all very good, very string-laden, and that really works for me here. It's so foreboding. It's so mm. mysterious. It is. And it's just got that. It's that the undertone that he's used again and again. And it's very reminiscent to the to the music in Insomnia. Very, yeah. very similar. Yeah. Works for me. It sets a tone. It's a character in the films. And I think he doesn't work with Dave Julian anymore because I think his his work really works for the smaller Nolan films, for that mm-hmm. character that it needs because it's not bombastic. It's not Hans Zimmer. You know what I mean? That's why yeah. I went Hans oh, Zimmer next. Way. And it's just this very understated, very powerful work. And I think Julian is, is massively overlooked in the industry for that. And I think he is fantastic. Everything he touches, I love. And again, on the music of this, it ends on Radiohead. So what's not a love? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, I like how the music follows the structure of the film. The soundtrack has three sections called The Pledge, The Turn, and Mm. The Prestige. That's a nice touch, and I do like the music, but I think the score is probably the least significant part of the film. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked about great scores before, like A Gladiator, where at its best the music sweeps the film along. That isn't the case here. The music's there, and it's good, Mm -hmm. but I don't think there's any point where it carries the film. There's no themes. Yeah, there's no themes, and it's not memorable. No. No. It supports the film and it supports the tone that Nolan wants pretty well, I think. But when we're talking about this kind of level of filmmaking, like very high, yeah. the music doesn't quite match it for me. Right. I mean, like you say, Wesley, maybe you'd say it at all that Nolan played Analyzed by Tom York over the end credits and not the score. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> not sure why he went for Tom York when the magic dance of Labyrinth, sung by Bowie, was right there. <laughs> but fine. Yeah, just slow it down 100%. Yeah. <laughs> very similar. I think it's very good without being very memorable. At the same time, by which I mean it, it's not a score you're going to come out humming it afterwards. No one has a particular theme or musical like identity in this film. It's pretty subtle for the most part. I think it's just about creating mood. And so from that respect, I think it does well. It is foreboding. It is dramatic, but without going OTT. So, yeah, not massively remarkable, but does the job. Yeah, there's no booms or crashes and no. reveals when there's like something goes wrong. It's just very yeah. much. There's no like Inception type like. No, yeah, not no, at all. Yeah. yeah. So some solid work from David Julian, mm-hmm. though the Prestige actually marked the last time Nolan and Julian worked together on a feature. Yeah. The year before the Prestige, Nolan worked with Hans Zimmer for the first time on Batman Begins, and, well, there's no going back from that, I don't think, is there? No. no. A collaborator who was run with Nolan for the long haul was director of photography Wally Fister. Mm. Starting on Memento, Fister then worked with Nolan on Insomnia, Batman Begins, and here on The Prestige. So how's Fister's work here as cinematographer, Matt? It's excellent. And I think The Prestige is a period film. That doesn't feel like it's a period film. And I think Fister contributes a lot to that because I know he shot a lot of it with just natural light. And I think that combined with how much of this is handheld, which I think is all of it, gives the film a real, like, earthy naturalism. Like, I think like a lot of period films, you feel like you're watching them through, like, a pane of glass. And Mm -hmm. and you can't, like, touch them. You can't touch that world. That's not the case with the prestige. Mm -hmm. There's no remove here. I feel like he shot it like he would have shot a film set in contemporary times. And Mm -hmm. I think it also does a really great job of blending this naturalism with all the more outlandish elements. So one of the best shots in the film for me is when Angie goes to Colorado and all the light bulbs in the ground light up around him when when he's having that conversation with Ali. So, yeah, I think it's excellent stuff by Fister. Yeah, 
I agree. When I think of the visuals of a period film, I usually think of like slow, meticulous mm-hmm. camera moves that show the relative calm of yeah. that time compared mm-hmm. to today. Like that zoom out on Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon that lasts for about three minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Looks like a painting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, though, Fista films are nothing like that. Mm. The prestige does feel very contemporary in how it's shot, which reflects the themes like identity and obsession mm. because they're like timeless themes. I know that they shot about 90% of the film handheld mm. and they didn't give the actors marks. Fister said that they did that because Nolan wanted the film to feel naturalistic yeah. and he wanted to be able to move the camera freely and block scenes as they went. But for me, when I think of the Nolan Fister collaboration, the first word I think of is IMAX. Mm. This, though, is two years before the first use IMAX on The Dark Knight. Yeah. But I think this film still feels like it has a big scale mm-hmm. visually. That wide shot you mentioned, man, mm. Colorado, of the mm. light bulbs, yeah. that's massive, that. It's mm-hmm. huge, yeah. They the shot this handheld, and I still want to see it on an IMAX screen. Yeah. I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same. I think this comes down to what Fister's really, really good at, and I think IMAX was a little bit too much for him. I thought he was he was great at shooting like this and that naturalistic approach, but when they shot Memento, he didn't really know what he was doing, and he's admitted to that. He didn't quite know how to light right. properly, and they worked together, and they've kind of developed the craft. And I do feel like the Dark Knight for him, or maybe Inception for him, is, is where he really started to struggle it looks incredible but it turns into a chris nolan film i think this is the last real collaboration where he has a lot to do with it the mm. lighting you can see the blocking that you've mentioned the fact that it is handheld and a little bit more loose i think this is the best wally Fist has ever shot to be honest nice. it's with that film that stands out for me where he's really honed his craft and it gave him confidence to go out and then try and be a director, which I think was a massive mistake for his career, and it was a big misstep, and he, he mm-hmm. never really recovered from that. But as a DP, I think it really works here, and it's the, like I say, it's the last Chris Nolan film. It doesn't feel like a pure Chris Nolan film. It feels like a collaboration where mm. he hasn't pushed in front of everybody else and said, <laughs> we're shooting this big, we're doing IMAX, we're doing this, we're yeah. doing it my way now. It feels like the last collaboration, and I think Wally Fister had a lot to do with that. What do you think when they went to IMAX, Nolan kind of took over? I think so, yeah. I think Wally Fister just said, okay, yeah, we can do as much as possible, but Nolan's ideas became far more yeah. removed from classic cinema. They came far mm. more removed from classic ways of shooting. And, you know, it's like it maybe turned around and thought, well, Wally, can you gaffer tape an IMAX camera to a Spitfire? And he's went, no, <laughs> I need someone else here to do that. <laughs> I think it's just a question of technique and, and question of, of ability. And not to say that Wally Fister hasn't got any ability because this film looks incredible. I think Nolan mm. just wanted to do something different. Yeah. And this is the last film where they collaborated and they worked purely together 50-50. And the costume designer uh, was a lady called Joan Bergen, and she worked closely with Fister in creating costumes, and they based them all on a particular colour palette, and what Fister and Nolan had decided they wanted was a muted colour palette for most of the costumes, because Fister said this would make the actors' faces pop out more on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a muted colour palette limits the design possibilities, it makes Joan Bergen's job harder, I'd imagine, but mm-hmm. it doesn't show. No. I think the costume design's excellent. Mm-hmm. Not sure why Boy doesn't have an orange mullet. <laughs> that's a bit of a missed opportunity yeah you would have been fired immediately <laughs> yeah <laughs> he emerges from that burning ball of electricity just as Ziggy started, Ziggy started yeah. <laughs> silver jumpsuit <laughs> John Bergen said that Nolan had told that design with half an eye on contemporary fashion as he wanted the costumes to match the modern filmmaking style which I think they really do you can see that in the costume Scarlett Johansson wears. If a woman had really went into the theatre in a skirt above the knee in Victorian London, they'd probably have been kicked out. So there yeah. is elements that have been just a little bit pushed. Yeah. 
Olivia does look great on the stage, doesn't she? Yeah. Well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And off the stage, yeah, yeah. to be fair. That's, <laughs> that's what Cutter says. A pretty apprentice is better than someone who knows yeah. what they're doing. Because it's, yeah, the, it's true, the only, yeah. way, only way to train the eye away from what's happening. So yeah. it's genius. Yeah. For his work on The Prestige, Wally Fister was nominated for an Oscar. Lost out to Guillermo Navarro for Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Oh, wow. Very okay. muted colour palette. Fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Silent colour palette. <laughs> so, as tends to be the way in Nolan films, he had an experienced and skilled crew backing him up. Some great collaborations on The Prestige. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. The, the last of the great collaborations for Nolan until he really stepped up the game. The end. Every magic trick has a third act, the hardest part, the part we call the prestige. Yeah. And Nolan definitely backs that up in the final part of his film. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the twists and turns of the film's climax shortly, but there's some real magic to tend to first. Mm-hmm. Angia returns from Colorado and has with him Tesla's machine. In the sequences that follow, we see Angia frame Borden for murder, but not before wowing London like never before when he performs the real transported man. Mm-hmm. Matt's reach exceeds his imagination. (laughs) 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 So, what do you think of this, Matt? Oh, when he does perform it for real, it's just so tense. It's just, I know I'm in the hands of film and I just can't tell what's going to happen next. It's built up to this big reveal so much and you were just on tenderhooks because this film has never gone the way you think it's going to go, ever. Is the trick going to work? Is it going to be something different? I love the music here, it's so ominous. And this is a moment where you really appreciate how commanding Angia is on stage. Like, he oh, just had, he has everyone eating out the palm of his hands here. Mm-hmm. Borden could never get the audience as, as enraptured mm-hmm. as they are here. And it's the one moment where you see Borden in that audience, and you can see he's so confused. He's not sure what's going on here because he's he sent Angie off in a wild goose chase from his perspective, he thinks. So, what has Angie done? What's going to happen next? And it's like I said in the right, and it so effectively makes you switch between the two as to which one you have sympathy for. And I do feel when Angie reappears on the balcony, he gives that speech like, you do feel that moment of triumph for him because you feel he's earned this after everything yeah. he's been through. You yeah, think, oh yeah. God, he's done it. Yeah. And like, we don't know what else he's up to yet. So we're actually happy for him on first viewing. But yet again, it's one of these that just plays so differently on repeat viewings. Once you know what's going on under the stage, there's a completely different way of viewing this scene. You know, how many performances are we into this now? How many clones is he going to kill? Does yeah. this make him a mass murderer? Is it mass suicide? Yeah. It, it's one of these scenes where the more you think about it, the more theories open up and the more questions I have about previous scenes. Like, what did happen to Root exactly? Where has Root gone? What is the deal with Tesla? Because it is extremely fortuitous that Angie gets sent on what's supposedly a wild goose chase to the one man who can build this machine for him anyway. Yeah, Unless yeah. that's not what it seems either, in which case yeah. the whole thing plays out differently. It's just yeah. brilliant. I do enjoy Angia hobbling around with a walking stick, talking about his travels yeah. really earnestly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I always feel like he's going to do like a Willy Wonka Roly Poly and throw the stick <laughs> yeah, away, like ta da! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that was a trick that he came back with. Rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But like you, Matt, there are some things here that I find really interesting. Mm. There's that line where Angia says he never knew which he was going to be, the mm-hmm. guy in the box or the prestige. Yeah. So he doesn't know if he's been alive for like 45 years or however old Angia is or if he's just been created. Yeah. I mean, talk about identity crisis. Yeah. That'll mess you up. Yep. Yeah. And that's backed up when we see Angia remove his wedding ring before performing the trick. Mm-hmm. He does that so the man that leaves the theatre, whether he's an original or the clone, mm-hmm. will have the ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a nice detail in there as well. But what on earth is Edward Hibbert, a.k.a. Gil from Frasier, doing in this? (laughs) (laughs) Also, the judge we see in a couple of scenes is played by Daniel Davis, a.k.a. Professor Moriarty from Star Trek The Next Generation. Right. (sighs) I'm just glad those two don't share a scene, to be honest. I'll I'll take your word for it. I'd have been taken so far with the film, I'd never have came back if those two had spoken to each other. Yeah. But narratively... We are cooking on gas by this point. Yeah. And all the questions that the machine raises, I find just really interesting. Mm-hmm. I like it when, you know, we get to that point and we see Borden actually go onto the stage to look at the machine. You mm-hmm. should be thinking, how's he got up there? But at this point, it feels like he's allowed to go up there. It feels like yeah. he's been chosen to go mm-hmm. up there. Yeah. And, there's a few of them go up, isn't there? Yeah, there's yeah. a few of them go up, but you feel like it's just, you can see Angie with his back to everybody, that he doesn't care yeah. that he's there. It's almost like he wants him to get up. So that, again, puts that notion in your mind that every time they've got up on stage and it seemed easy to do up until now, it's a real mm. payoff for this moment so he knows how to get mm. him up and it seems to be easy. So mm. it's all part of the narrative and the foreboding and the foreshadowing of how that's going to work. And then he just basically cuts past Cutter and Cutter doesn't know anything that's going on because he's front of the stage and he's like, who's he? Who is that? Mm. The part of the eight, you fool! Yeah, he's just because <laughs> yeah. he pulled the beard off. Oh, yeah. they must be then. There's a magician right there. <laughs> and he runs down and everything. Just it, It's so creepy when you see what's going on and you see you know, the the blind stage hands and the lightning yeah. going off mm. and there's just a reflection in the eyes and you know they're there. And then that's moment when it comes down and that just locks and you see mm. that pain on his face and yeah. then Borden's like shit what have you done where's the key yeah. where the... and he's, he literally yeah. just wants yeah. to know the answers he doesn't want anything to happen and it's great it's just full circle from what happened at the start to what's happening now and I love that moment in the scene that you were talking about Matt where his first mm. trick of that 100 show run that he's going to do mm. is that water tank so that water yeah. tank is always there yeah. even mm. though they don't show the trick again he goes mm-hmm. this is what happened to somebody and it is dangerous yeah. and this is how we begin this show so that water tank's always explained that it's always going to be there mm-hmm. does he use it every time yeah. Is it set up for this moment? Does he see him in the crowd and then say, this yeah. is going to be it? But then who changes the yeah. looks? What the yeah. fuck's going on, yeah. man? <laughs> yeah. How does he know? Why is he doing 100? Is that just yeah. enough to pull him out? Like, I don't get it. I don't I don't really want to get it. I know it's there. It should really be annoying, but it's just fascinating stuff. Mm. And like you said, I was going to say earlier on, John, but I didn't want to ruin this moment. It doesn't matter who's got the axe. He can't even break the fucking glass. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> I know. It really doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> yeah, I always like it when we get a scene early on in the film that makes no sense yeah and then we see it again with context yeah and it still makes no sense <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah. This. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but some of the imagery beneath the stage is great the Fantastic. flashing blue light yeah. coming through the floorboard as the machine does its thing yeah. Yeah. all the blind fellas sitting around is creepy like you said yeah and i like borders disguise tiny mustache that makes yeah. him look no different yeah <laughs> and a bit weird they are part of the day, you fool mm. it's the sound design as well on this moment when he goes like it really that's what it must sound like backstage mm. you've got the crowd yeah. reactions you've got everything yeah, yeah. that's going on and it envelops you the whole thing and yeah. the clone doesn't turn up on this one which i think is just fucking brilliant mm. but how <laughs> <laughs> exactly it's just got that real satisfaction of watching everything coming together and events are coming back on themselves but with a fresh perspective so you're 
Borden actually isn't part of the act. This is why they were using blind stagehands downstairs. Yeah. Mm. And this is how you do non-linear storytelling really well. If you do it badly, you just get too confused to engage with any of it. But this, you do it well. And it just has a real satisfaction to it, a real sense of going, ah, right, he didn't kill Angie. He just happened to be there. And then A, B, C, D all came around it. Really yeah. satisfying stuff. So we're approaching the end of the film then. Time to reveal all of its secrets, do you think? If we can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> In the closing stages of The Prestige, the twists come fast and furious. Borden is sentenced to death for Angier's murder. Angier then visits Borden in prison. Borden is hanged. And then Borden shoots Angier. A lot of Bordens. What the hell's going on, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> you get to this point and you feel that everything is settled when you cut back to Borden in jail because you think, right, so they've had the feud. Andrew yep. used the machine to clone himself. That's who yep. drowned. Borden didn't murder him, but he got set up because he let the feud escalate. Right, okay, I think I've got it. I'm on top of this. And then Lord <laughs> Colo turns up. Because he's only... <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Lord Caldwell always have been. What? Yeah. What the hell? Like, we've been given no reason to expect he's even going to turn up, let alone be of any importance, let alone be Andrea all along. And, like, my head is just exploding at this point. Yeah. And... That should be frustrating, but it feels actually very usual suspect to me, like he was the bad guy all along and he's been manipulating everyone to get what he wants. And mm -hmm. it is satisfying because when it can trick you like that, it dupes you, but you don't feel stupid for being duped. You yeah. just feel like, oh, that was so cleverly done. Yeah. And you, you're left reeling by it. You finally realise Angie has been the real bastard out of the two of them manufacturing the whole thing and stealing Borden's daughter in the process. Just absolutely horrific stuff. And then to walk away and he just rips a Borden secret like Borden is so desperate. He's oh, the yeah. secret. He's the secret. Well, he's like, mine's better. Yeah. Great. Yeah, 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 yeah brilliant. Yeah. Mine was better. Like, oh, God, you just think, well, that's it. It's done. And, you know, what if he had read it? Was Borden going to tell him the truth anyway? So you think it's going to be one of those endings where it's bleak and it's tragic, but it's still really satisfying because it's so well done. Until you get Borden's last words before he's hung, abracadabra. Because you don't say abracadabra when you're defeated. You say that when the trick is about to be pulled off. So you know yeah. the trick isn't over yet. There's something else still coming. But mm. can I guess what it is? Absolutely not. First time I watched this, I was expecting him just to disappear through the floor and <laughs> yeah. then the noose to be empty. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just at this point, anything out. goes. Anything goes. Absolutely, anything does least, go, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in that moment where Lord Collow's revealed, I always think... If you've not been paying full attention, or if you've got a hangover, you won't have a clue what's going on yet. <laughs> <laughs> the twists are coming so fast, it's crazy. And by this point, Angie is like an evil villain. He even looks like Dick Dastardly Does, twirling yeah, his moustache. Yeah, yeah. you want him to hide behind his cape? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Frames Borden for a murder he didn't commit, and then turns up to glow with Borden's daughter. Mm. <sighs> Yeah. I mean, I think they're both great in this scene too, yeah, Chapman yeah. and Bale. Yeah. And Borden shouting, they're going to bloody hang yeah, me. Yeah. That's tough, that. Yeah. yeah. I like how Nolan makes a final connection between the magicians and their wives and the way they meet their fates as well. Uh -huh. And Gia's killed each night by drowning in a water tank, the same mm. way his wife Julia died. Yeah. And Borden's killed yeah. by hanging. Yeah. His wife Sarah hanged herself. Yeah. Well, then Borden kills Angie. <laughs> yeah. so, Somehow, obviously. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah. There's a, there's, there's a bouncy ball. Okay, lovely. And you get that reveal beneath the stage and he's just full of hell at this moment. What I do love yeah. is that, that moment when he walks past cutter mm -hmm. he looks like Fallon at that point mm -hmm. and then he's into he's into the theater 
and he's downstairs and then he'd say he's taking all of the stuff off and the reveal the reveal could have been Fallon shooting him and then him taking everything off mm-hmm. to show that and that would have been a more contemporary kind of way to do the twist I think they must have considered that idea I think yeah. I think they must oh, have because so. I think yeah. he walks in as Fallon and then comes down as yeah. Borden but it's the way that the, the twist comes around the way that he reveals everything the way the voiceover works between the flashbacks you get just the right amount of flashbacks we were both mm. this person we took turns it was about mm-hmm. this and you had a brother it was a brother and it's great the way he delivers that and he, he realises it much much before the audience does he goes mm. a brother and we go what a fucking yeah. what yeah. <laughs> yeah. and he goes down and picks the ball up he's like fucking, what, what did you mean explain and he does he explains it just right <laughs> and it's a great performance from Hackman here when he's just clinging on to every breath to try and find out what's going on. He's this mm-hmm. fucking final obsession. He's ever refusing to die. Yeah, and he yeah. just... He is great. It's, it's when Borden turns around and says, I don't care. He's like, look at my sacrifice. Yeah. I don't care about mm-hmm. your sacrifice anymore. Yeah. Fuck you. Finally putting a full stop to it. Fantastic scene. Mm-hmm. So, like I've been saying all the way through... I've got a Westy theory about the end. Oh, here we go. Come on, then. Strap That's in. That's John's theory, isn't it? How can it be a Westy theory? <laughs> That's the brand name, I think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right, it is. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Like a cereal. <laughs> so there's two parts to the theory. Okay. okay. One part I'm definite on. Mm-hmm. The other part is my best guess as to what's going on. Right, okay. okay. Strap yourselves in, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the definite part is that I'm convinced that the main twist in the film, Borden is a twin, isn't the main twist. Right. There's a lot that tells us there's another unrevealed twist. First, Nolan's been quoted as saying, the film has been written to the principles of a magic trick, stories within stories and misdirections. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does a magic trick do? A misdirection you think one thing is true when something else is. With you mm-hmm. so far. Mm-hmm. The first words of the film are, are you watching closely? Yep. Mm-hmm. I think that's Nolan talking to us at the start of his trick, like a magician would. Mm-hmm. Then, at the end, we get the cut and monologue. He says, making someone disappear is not enough. You have to bring them back. Mm-hmm. As he says that, Borden appears again to get his daughter. Yes. Mm-hmm. That is where the film should fade out. It would be a perfect ending. Yeah. But Cutter carries on and says, you want to know the secret, but you won't find it because you're not really looking. Yeah. The camera pans to Angier in the tank. Cutter says, you want to be, be fooled. fooled. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cut to black. Yeah. So even after the twist is revealed, Nolan's still telling us there's a secret. Mm-hmm. I've got little doubt there's a twist that Nolan hasn't told us. Yeah. Okay. What that twist is, I'm not certain. But what I think is most likely is that the cloning machine doesn't actually work. Yeah. And yeah, was ripped off by Tesla and given a box that doesn't do anything, mm-hmm. and there is some evidence. In the first act, Moriarty says to Cutter about the machine, I'm sure it has a simple trick, and Cutter says it has no trick. And if the machine does work, then the film has plot holes, quite a few, but two big ones. First, Tesla talks about having financial problems. You'd have no financial problems if you had a cloning machine. Yeah. You could clone as much money or gold as he likes, or open a top hat shop. So... <laughs> That makes no sense. And why would Angier kill himself or risk killing himself every night, like he says? Mm. He would just make one clone of himself and the two of them could perform the trick indefinitely. So the machine mustn't work. However, we do see Angier shoot his own clone and we see Angier in the tank at the end. Those Mm. things, as I see it, are not explained in the film unless Angier is a set of triplets or quadruplets, (laughs) which will be mental. (laughs) So... To sum up, there is definitely an unrevealed twist, and I'm pretty sure the twist is that the machine doesn't work, but there are some loose plot threads around that as well. Right, okay. That thing you said, though, about Angie shooting his clone, what stands out for me, that scene, he's the only person who talks about that scene. There's no one witness to that at all. That's right. That's like in the diary, isn't it? It's in the diary. We've only got his word. That's what happened. So that could be complete bullshit. And then this is why I'm saying what happens to Root? 
because if he isn't creating clones, he still needs one person that looks like him. Maybe he's gone back to Root for one last payday. It could be Root, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Either way, I think Nolan's made a film that genuinely doubles as a magic trick, Definitely. which is pretty great. Yeah. yeah, I do think there's one more that I touched on that I do think is more about the twins than it is about anything else. And it's how many times when I rewatched this last night, I'm thinking, right, I look, because John went, I've got a theory on this, have you got any? And I thought, no, I don't, fuck. And I was pissed off. <laughs> so I watched it again last night, and I'm like, I need to find something in this. And I don't know whether I'm just clutching at straws, but I just found it really, really interesting how many times it's questioned about the locks and how many times mm. Borden brings up locks. You think that's going to be enough to keep me out when the first time that he meets Sarah and, you know, and he's let into the house, mm. he can break locks, he can get in. It's always been his thing. Move chains around. First visitor he gets, check the locks twice. And I think that it's Freddy outside and it's Alfred who's inside. Mm-hmm. In the wrong, yeah. but Freddie knows that he is responsible for deaths. He's responsible for Julia's death. He's responsible for Sarah's death. He says that he's sorry for Sarah. And the mm. twist in the film is that the one, the twin who's not guilty, gets out of prison and he's replaced by his other twin who is guilty. And that's when he walks away and gives him the ball. It's whoever's got the ball has the power. Right. So yeah. I think he finds mm. a way out and they switch. And that's the trick. That's the prestige. That's the difference. And that's what right. the whole story's about. So I think the whole point of the film is he can go anywhere and do anything. And that's hinted at all the way through the prison sequences so that he can get out because he actually opens the cell door and says, are you still here? Mm-hmm. And yeah, he says, for yeah. now. And it's, it says to the guard as he's getting hung, he's like, are you watching closely? Are you mm-hmm. watching closely? Because I've just mm-hmm. fucked you over and I've just yeah. escaped and I've just been replaced by somebody else and I want to be here. And he accepts his fate. And I think that, again, is another twist that Nolan's putting in. Not the mm-hmm. ultimate twist, not the ultimate no. theory, mm-hmm. but I do yeah. think that's something in there to look at. Yeah, I think that's what's so clever is because not only is there an unrevealed twist, but like a magic trick, there's a lot of misdirection about what the unrevealed twist could be yeah. Yeah. as well. And then yeah. everyone's so sure about what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they did it this way. No, they did it this yeah. way. And again, yeah. that's what the film's about, trying to find yeah. that out. I'm just glad Borden explains everything at this point. Like <laughs> You and me both. Yeah. yeah. Somebody explain Is something. Somebody yes. just explain one thing, please. <laughs> like, normally I would hate an info dump like this, but so much has been going on. So many things got flipped on the head. So many things I'm not sure if they've even happened or not. Like, if you've kept up by now, just give yourself, like, a pat on the back. Like, well done. <laughs> well done. I think you've earned the fact to just let Borden lay it all out for you and let ex- explain, like, all right, so he at least had a brother. I do at least get that. But I do think that well, as he was walking in his Fallon, I do think Cutter is sick of Angier's shit and tells him mm. where he is. He tells Borden where he is. Oh, when he's escaped prison, he says, oh, yeah, this is where yeah. he is. And he walks past yeah. him and lets him go. Yeah. That's oh, why definitely. he's looking after his daughter. And that's yeah, where yeah. that nod comes from at the end. Yeah. It's yeah. like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I know you're the right person. I know you had a twin brother. And I know he fucked up. He's paid for his dues. Angier's paid for his dues. Go and live your life. So what we're saying is, Cutter's the real villain. Cutter is the villain. Yeah. Do you know how Andrea said to Tesla that he's made a machine for someone in the past? Mm-hmm. He made it for Cutter, and Cutter's clone was actually <laughs> Fallon, and then Fallon looks like, oh, I don't fucking know. It doesn't matter, does it? Go anywhere. Well, whatever you think happens, that is the end of the prestige. Andrea's dead, all versions of him, presumably. Mm-hmm. One half of Borden's dead, the other half leaves with his daughter, and Cutter, not a care in the world for Cutter, is there? No. <laughs> he's still figuring it out. Reception and awards. The Prestige did well on its release, though it didn't exactly set the world alight, to be honest. Mm. On a budget of $40 million, it grossed $109.7 million, so it did turn a profit. Mm-hmm. 
and critics weren't totally blown away by it either. Roger, the Professor Ebert, first. <laughs> what did our man Roger rate it, do you think? I reckon Two. he liked it. Three. Yeah, three, yeah. He did. He gave the film three stars out of four. Oh, yeah. He called the twist around Borden at the end a fundamental flaw and said the pledge of the prestige is that the film, having been metaphorically sawed in two, will be restored. It fails when it cheats, as if the woman produced on stage were not the same one cut in two. Does Rog think that magicians were actually sawing women in half and putting them back together? (laughs) (laughs) They were cheating as well. Very literal, Rog, isn't he? Yeah, that's a typical, I've only seen the prestige once. This is what it's about with you. It's like, no, you need five viewings before you know what's going on. Yeah, Watch it another 15 times and you'll be aware where you are and still not know what's going on. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Talking for like two hours about it and still being like, shall we go back to the start? Yeah, Yeah. have we we even been watching closely? Empire Magazine gave the film four stars out of five and said the prestige is odd, but brilliantly so. Mm. It's a small film that feels big, mm-hmm. a period drama that looks modern, defying comparison to anything but Nolan himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good old Empire. Dear Cunnicutt of The Hollywood Reporter, however, was not a fan. Yeah. He said the characters are little more than sketches, remove their obsessions, and the two magicians have little personality. Really? Yeah. Mm. I mean... I'm not sure saying remove the characters' obsessions and they're not good characters is a fair criticism in a film that's about obsession. No, yeah, honest. Or, or any film, it's <laughs> yeah. like remove the character's motivation and they've got yeah. no motivation. Yeah. But yeah, that's correct. <laughs> exactly. Take out all the aliens and aliens is rubbish. Yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah. nothing to shoot, is there? Yeah. What, are they, what are they getting upset about? <laughs> On Rotten Tomatoes, the prestige has a critic's approval rating of 76%. I was surprised it wasn't higher. I thought it'd be higher. Yeah, however, the audience's approval rating is higher at 92%. Right. Mm. And on IMDb, The Prestige has a huge score of 8.5 out of 10. Yeah. At the Oscars, The Prestige received two nominations, Wally Fister for Best Cinematography and Nathan Crowley and Julie Oshapindi for Achievement in Art Direction. Mm. Both deserved, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And there it is. It didn't exactly fly off the shelves or cause a critical storm when it's released, The Prestige, but with those huge audience scores, it seems like its stature continues to grow. Oh, definitely. Yeah, 100%. Sequels and influence. No sequels for The Prestige, thankfully. I've not wrapped my head around this one yet. (laughs) (laughs) See what you think of this, though. A sequel, Queen's soundtrack, The Prestige 2... It's a kind of magic. <laughs> I knew that was going kind of... oh, to bite my tongue there just to let you get the punchline. Uh, yeah, great. <laughs> I think it's safe to say Nolan is unlikely to ever make a sequel. No. Where, though, has it had an impact? Where do we see the prestigious legacy today, Matt? I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not like there was a slew of copycat films about magicians that came after this. I think everyone in it was pretty well established anyway, apart from maybe Rebecca Hall, so it's probably her big breakthrough, mm. so you could say that. I think, though, its biggest influence is on Nolan himself, because I think this is the film where he was always going to do just what he wanted, and I can imagine after Batman Begins, there would have been huge pressure and huge financial incentives to jump in and do the sequel straight away, but he didn't, and I think he said, no, I'm going to do in my career what I want to do always, and I'm not going to just follow the money i'm not going to follow people's orders and if this one had flopped he might never have had that kind of freedom again he might have just thought, well i'll just do superhero films so yeah i think the influence of this mainly is i think norton asserting himself as one of the few directors out there who can really call the shots on what the next project is going to be definitely 
I mean, you're right, there was a spate of films with magical subject matter around the same time, wasn't mm. there? Yeah. You had the Illusionist, the Now yeah. You See Me films, uh, yeah. Stardust. Yeah. Though I would say that was probably more down to the Harry Potter films. Yeah. The Prestige is easily the best of those magic movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Its main influences probably came, like you say, my cementing the reputation of Christopher Nolan as somebody mm-hmm. with a very distinct voice in movies. Mm-hmm. The nonlinear narrative, the twisting turns there here. It strengthened the collaborations he has with the likes of Wally Fister, Michael Caine, Christian Bale, and unfortunately for David Julian, maybe made Nolan realise mm-hmm. the music wasn't quite there. Yeah. And the themes of identity and capitalism are things Nolan comes back to time and time again. The Dark Knight films, Inception, mm-hmm. Tenet, all explore those to some extent. So the direct influence of the prestige on other films, I think, was probably short-lived, but in playing a role in solidifying Nolan's trademarks and identity as a filmmaker I think it certainly is not an insignificant film yeah it's far from insignificant and I think it's just going to keep growing and I think more people are going to be influenced from it now especially as Oppenheimer's come out and people are who is this Christopher Nolan everyone's talking about (laughs) and he's now a household name and I think even the Batman trilogy didn't get him quite to that point and I think a lot more people are going to discover this film and like you have said I think it is more of an influence on him as a filmmaker the way as Matt said earlier where it's sandwiched in his career he's done Batman Begins he comes back and does this little film and then he goes on to do The Dark Knight but there is a spate of films that come from this and I think there will be a spate of films that will be influenced by this in the future I think we're about time now where it's going to come back down to intelligent narrative based cinema I think people are sick I hope you're right Mm -hmm. well so do I but it, it has to really and I think what he's done with Oppenheimer has given you a little bit of both and people are going to come back to this film as like a blueprint of how that is done. It doesn't have to be massive. It doesn't need explosions. It is character-based, and it feels of the time now. It feels like it's still ready now for people to explore it and take the themes that this offers and run with it. So there's probably not going to be a The Prestige 2, <laughs> and it wasn't exactly a Hollywood game-changer first time round, mm. but The Prestige has grown in status over the years, and in supporting Nolan's place as one of the key Hollywood directors of his generation, its legacy is a pretty strong one. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. It shows yeah. on that audience score over the critic yeah. score. I think this yeah. is one for the people, and some kid is going to see this in about three years' time and just say, yeah. right, I'm going to make a film like this, and yeah. something new is going to happen, hopefully. All the right movies ranking. So that's the prestige. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's magic. Oh, yeah. That was the greatest magic trick I've ever heard. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> We've been through the pledge of the turn, the prestige, and the full behind the scenes story, and now it's time to reveal the biggest secret of all the All the Right Movies scores out of 10. Mm-hmm. Yep. Matthew put this mm-hmm. one up, so you want to yep. kick it off? Your summary and score for the prestige? Yep. I knew I wanted to talk about this film eventually. I come back to it, honestly, I had forgotten just how enjoyable it is. And for me, it's the storytelling. And it's the fact that you just get more and more out of this story. The more, the think, the more you think about it, the more you do look closely, like you're told to do. And I've been down such a rabbit hole of theories about this one. And that's one of the best things about it. Like, honestly, anyone who thinks they know what's going on without a shadow of a doubt... Just go and read a different theory about a reader theory that contradicts your belief. And I guarantee yeah. you'll do a 180 and it'll be like watching the film with a complete fresh pair of eyes. Yeah. It'll be so different. And how many films can pull off that trick? I love the performances. I love the kind of period detail, the setting. If I was being picky, I'd quibble over the writing for the female characters. But overall, it's so unique. It's so rewatchable. It's so different every time you come to depending on how you watch it and what you pay attention to. Whether it is best, I don't know, but it is my favourite Nolan film, so it's getting a 10. Wow. Favourite Nolan? Mm. Wow, okay. It is. 
Mm-hmm. Wowza. Mm. Yeah, I also enjoyed revisiting this one. I'm a big Northern fan, and I think this is one of his most underrated. The subject matter of like Victorian London magicians, a fascinating topic, I think. We've talked about the visuals, and I think they're excellent. We've talked about the cast. I think they're excellent. I think the writing has themes and subtexts and twists layered to a level I've not often seen, mm. to a level where we've not been able to cover them all in the detail out of light, yeah. to be honest. Mm. Yeah. Like I mentioned, there are things going on here Nolan will never reveal. Mm-hmm. And while I do love that as an idea, I don't think it's been executed perfectly, as there are what seem to be some loose threads, like I brought up. Yeah. Despite that, though, I would say it's a contender for Nolan's greatest film. I'd say it's definitely Nolan's most underrated film, mm. and it being followed by The Dark Knight and Inception, it starts my favourite one, two, three run by any director. Wow. So for me, it is a magical nine out of ten. Oh. I'm leaving the 10 for the prestige too. It's a kind of magic. <laughs> it's a kind of tragic. <laughs> and Westy, your summary and score for the prestige? Yeah, I mean, I love the smaller scale Nolan. I love the really intelligent interwining. I don't give a fuck what the audience thinks, Nolan, which is what this is, which is what Memento is, which is what Insomnia was, even though that's a remake. You know, this is an adaptation of a novel, but it feels incredibly his own. And he takes that on board and that's what he does. He has a stamp on every film and you can feel him all the way through his films and you can with this but I do feel like this is almost too personal to him I don't feel like you can access it as much as you should be able to access it and I think Mm. a lot of people had a problem with that when it first came out and I still have a little bit of problem with that I feel like I'm peeking behind the curtain to something I shouldn't really be seeing I feel like I'm part of a club (laughs) that's far too intelligent for me to be part of I feel like a bit of a fraud and I feel like I'm you know trying to just speak too far too intelligently about something to a group of people who know a lot more than I do about it and that's how it feels with this they're just being nice and going yeah watch this with me and yeah and I'm like yeah you see that and they're like yeah yeah it's the red ball bounce did you see that and they're like Jesus Christ who's this guy but it does have that level of intelligence that level of confidence that level of Nolan but I don't think it's accessible for everybody I don't think I'd recommend this to everybody because I think a lot I would get a lot of people come mm. back to us going what the fuck was that about mm. I don't understand that yeah. so I do think you need to be in a certain mood to watch this film and so it doesn't strike one with me where i can just watch it at any point i really need to be in the mood for it there are a few things that jar us out of it there are a few things that confuse us a little bit and a few things that i really thoroughly enjoy about the film but i'm not going to give a full marks it's not my top nolan it's not my not even in my top three nolan to be fair so it is it's still a solid nine on ten because it's a fucking it's a it's loads of fun but you've got to be in the mood to sit through it As ever, we also put this out to our patrons and followers on Twitter, or X, some of their comments on The Prestige. Kunal Talgeri, at Kunal Talgeri, said, To weave magicians into a plot for 21st century viewers, to bring Tesla into that story, and to be able to get a big studio to commission it, and then execute to perfection, this is one of Nolan's biggest landmarks in cinema. As always, perfect casting. Yep. I think Kunal hit at a Hollywood problem there, and it is a problem, that there are no directors out there getting original blockbusters commissioned at big scale. No. Northern no. and James Cameron, and yeah. that's about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's going to change, Westy, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. So, it's yeah. on the way. It's on the horizon. <laughs> <laughs> Jaunting for prosperity. Is it just me, or are these names getting more crazy <laughs> with every episode? <laughs> There's some really weird ones out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Jaunting for prosperity at Jen Jones 1964 said, The Prestige is literally a magic trick. Mm-hmm. It begins by explaining how magic tricks work by distraction and implores the viewer to watch carefully. Then it goes on to distract the viewer who thinks he is watching carefully but still misses the clues. Yeah. It's a masterpiece. I agree with the magic trick structure and the yeah. misdirection. Yeah. Wise mm-hmm. words. 
yep. from jonesing for prosperity. Yeah, could have thought of a more wise name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, fair play. You're probably yeah, running out yeah. of handles now on Twitter. There's that many people on there. <laughs> yeah. And one of our patrons, Billy Reed, said, "The Prestige is simply a masterpiece, an astonishing film wrapped in magic, mystery, and misdirection. Nolan's greatest trick yet." Mm. Yep. We had a lot of great comments from our patrons, as we always do. Mm. But the reason I chose Billy's is because Billy is a magician. Wow. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Great patron, great magician. Yeah. So we'll get Billy Reed booked for your events. Yeah. He knows what's going on. <laughs> Shameless plug. I hope he actually is. hope he yeah. just doesn't turn up to trying to get his comment read out. <laughs> he told me he was a magician. Go on, well, there you go. I told you. Hey, John, so am I. <laughs> I misdirected. <Yeah. laughs> and altogether, our Twitter followers rated the film as, what do you think, out of 10? Oof. Nine. Yeah, nine. It was 8.5. Oh, wow. Okay. So that gives the prestige 36.5 out of 40 in total. Mm. Northern always does pretty big numbers. He does. Yeah. Absolutely. And as if by magic, we've reached the end. Hopefully you liked it and don't think our reach exceeded our grasp. (laughs) (laughs) For our next trick, there's something strange in your neighborhood. It's Westy, Matt and Luke. Getting right into the 80s comedy classic that is Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Old Testament, real Wrath of God type stuff yeah. there. Yeah, absolutely. Blood, blood running down the walls. Yeah. <laughs> to find out more about becoming a Patreon, accessing our archive bonus episodes and supporting what we do, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies. You can subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Only five stars though, please. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Socially, you can keep up with all the right movies on Twitter or X, where we are at AT Right Movies. We post threads on there that tell the stories behind classic films. Everything we post has been said by somebody involved in the production or comes from three separate sources, same mm-hmm. as our podcasts. Yep. So check that out. Mm-hmm. You can find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash all the right movies. On Instagram and threads, we are at all the underscore right movies. You can join our movie group on Facebook to get involved with lots of movie discussions. And our website, full of great features, is alltherightmovies.com. Sure is. We're all off now to get out there and find Matt's double for our new act. (laughs) (laughs) We were going to do Westy, but one Westy's enough. (laughs) I'll jump in the fucking water tank, see if you can get this out in time. (laughs) Yeah, mine's probably really drunk. (laughs) Pissed up somewhere and see him. Please do come back next time, though, for Ghostbusters. There's two of them, but we're doing the first one. Yes. Who you going to be? Becoming the event movie maker of his generation. My name's John, and with me today we have the great Westy. And the only way that I know how to do it is to find you a bloody good double. And Matt, the Professor Bartley. Don't forget your hat, Mr. Angier. Who's that? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. You watched the right film, bud. David Bowie. (laughs) That was great.